0: The following is a conversation with David Kipping, an astronomer and astrophysicist at Columbia University, director of the Cool Worlds Lab, and he's an amazing educator about the most fascinating scientific phenomena in our universe. I highly recommend you check out his videos on the Cool Worlds YouTube channel. David quickly became one of my favorite human beings. I hope to talk to him uh, many more times in the future. And now, a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Simply Safe for home security, Shopify for e commerce, and ExpressVPN for privacy on the internet. Choose wisely, my friends. And now, onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I find those annoying. <laughs> so I try my best to make sure we don't have any. Uh, But uh, if you skip these, uh, please still check out the sponsors. I mean, without them, this podcast would not be possible. So it's a huge, huge thank you to them for believing this podcast, for supporting it. And they make good stuff, which is the reason why they're a sponsor. So maybe you might consider checking out their stuff. Uh, Maybe it will make you feel good as well. This show is brought to you by Simply Safe, a home security company designed to be simple and effective. I don't remember at this point, how long it took me to set it up. Uh, But it must have been certainly less than an hour, it's probably like 30 minutes. Everything just works, Uh, everything's connected, all the sensors are amazing, just super easy to use. And I think that first layer of security, of physical security is essential. I take my security extremely seriously. Uh, There's many, many layers of both uh, physical and digital security and I think it's just taking security seriously allows you to kind of take control of your life and take responsibility uh, for being in this world, uh, a world that's sort of full of dangers and risks and all that kind of stuff. And it's just really empowering, just like uh, uh, discipline is freedom. I think uh, in that same way, uh, taking your security seriously is a kind of freedom because it gives you freedom to take on the day. Anyway, go to simplysafe.com to get a free indoor security camera plus 20% off your order with interactive monitoring. This show is also brought to you by Shopify, a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere with a great looking online store that brings your ideas to life and tools to manage day to day operations. I really, really (laughs) should put out merch. I know as a fan of podcast shows, bands, everything. I love wearing the thing on my shirt just to make myself feel good. But it's also a nice way to connect with others that start a conversation. Like Metallica, I just wore a Metallica shirt to the gym. One guy said, yeah, Metallica. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) together through that, there's like, I don't know his life story. He doesn't know my life story. And I think there was a joint celebration of two lives that at least for time, have enjoyed the hell out of some Metallica. So what can I say? Anyway, sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lex, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lex to take your business to the next level today. This show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN, a company that for many, many years brought happiness to my life with a big sexy button that I press and it takes care of everything. I think it's really, really important that you have a VPN and ExpressVPN has been my favorite. is one I really recommend. The thing I love most about it is it does the thing it does extremely well without extra features that nobody needs and it does it on every single operating system or device. Android, Mac OS, Linux, whatever. I love software that is designed simply, or rather the final thing is simple. But the underlying design, it doesn't matter what it is, they deliver a simple feeling. It's like Olympic gymnasts or Olympic athletes, a gold medal is an effortless performance. Perfection seems effortless. But the path, the journey to perfection is one heck of a difficult journey. And so whatever the Journey Express VPN took, I'm glad they did, because they uh, created an amazing piece of software. Go to expressvpn.com slash lexpod for an extra three months free. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's David Kipping. Your research at Columbia is in part focused on what you call cool worlds or worlds outside our solar system where temperature is sufficiently cool to allow for moons, rings and life to form and for us humans to observe it. So can you tell me more about this idea, this place of cool worlds?
1: Yeah, the history of discovering planets outside our solar system was really dominated by these hot planets. And that's just because of the fact they're easier to find. When the very first methods came online, these were primarily the Doppler spectroscopy method, looking for wobbling stars, um, and also the transit method. And these two both have a really strong bias towards finding these hot planets. Now, hot planets are interesting. The chemistry in their atmosphere is fascinating. It's very alien. Um, An example of one that's particularly close to my heart is Trace 2b, whose atmosphere is so dark, it's less reflective than coal, and so they have really bizarre photometric properties, yet at the same time, they resemble nothing like our own home. And so it said there's two types of astrophysicists, the astrophysicists who care about how the universe works. They wanna understand the mechanics of the machinery of this universe. Why did the Big Bang happen? Why is the universe expanding? How are galaxies formed? And there's another type of astrophysicist, which perhaps, um speaks to me a little bit more. It whispers into your ear, and that is, why are we here? Are we alone? Are there others out there? And ultimately along this journey, the hot planets aren't going to get us there. We, when we're looking for life in the universe, it seems to make perfect sense that there should be planets like our own out there, maybe even moons like our own planet around gas giants that could be habitable. And so my research has been driven by trying to find these more terraculous globes that might resemble our own planet. So they're the ones that lurk more in the shadows in terms of how difficult it is to detect. They're much harder. They're harder for several reasons. The method we primarily use is the transit method. So this is really eclipses. As the planet passes in front of the star, it blocks out some starlight. The problem with that is that not all planets pass in front of their star. They have to be aligned correctly from your line of sight. And so the further away the planet is from the star, the cooler it is, the less likely it is that you're gonna get that geometric alignment. So, whereas a hot Jupiter, about 1% of hot Jupiters will transit in front of their star, only about 0.5%, uh, maybe even a quarter of a percent of Earth-like planets will have the right geometry to transit. And so that makes it much, much harder for us.
0: What's the connection between temperature of the planet and geometric alignment, probability of geometric alignment?
1: There's not a direct connection, but they're connected by an intermediate parameter, which is their separation from the star. So oh, the, the planet will be cooler if it's further away from the star, which in turn means that the probability of getting that alignment correct is going to be less. On top of that, they also transit their star less frequently. So if you go to the telescope and you want to discover a hot Jupiter, you could probably do it in a week or so, because the orbital period is of order of one, two, three days. So you can actually get the full orbit two or three times over. Whereas if you want to set an Earth-like planet, you have to observe that star for three, four years. And that's actually one of the problems with uh, Kepler. Kepler- was this very successful mission that NASA launched um, over a decade ago now, I think. And it discovered thousands of planets. It's still the dominant source of exoplanets that we know about. But unfortunately, it didn't last as long as we would have liked it to. It died after about 4.35 years, I think it was. And so for an Earth-like planet, that's just enough to catch four transits. And four transits was kind of seen as the minimum. But of course, the more transits you see, the easier it is to detect it, because you build up signal to noise. If you see the same thing, tick, 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 the more ticks you get, the easier it is to find it. And so it was really a shame that Kepler was just at the limit of where we were expecting it to start to see Earth-like planets. And in fact, it really found zero. Zero planets that are around stars like the Sun, that orbit similar to the Earth around the Sun, and could potentially be similar to our own planet in terms of its composition. And so it's a great shame, but um, that's why it gives astronomers more to do in the future. Just to clarify, the transit method Mm -hmm.
0: is our primary way of detecting these things. And what it is, is um, when the object passes, occludes the source of light just a tiny bit, a few pixels, and from that, we can infer something about its mass and size and distance and geometry, all, all of that. Mm-hmm. That's like trying to tell what, uh, at a party, you can't see anything about a, a person, but you can just see by the way they occlude others. So this is the method, but yeah. is this a super far away. How many pixels of information do we have? Basically, how high resolution is the signal that we, um, that we can get about these occlusions?
1: You're right in your description. I, I think just to build upon that a little bit more, it might be almost like your vision is completely blurry. Like you have an extreme you know, eye prescription and so you can't resolve anything. Everything's just blurs. And, but you can tell that something was there because it just got fainter for a short amount of time. Something, someone passed in front of a light. Yeah. And so that light in your eyes would just dim for a short moment. Now, the reason we have that problem with blurriness or resolution is just because the stars are so far away. I mean these are the closest stars are four light years away, but most of the stars Kepler looked at were thousands of light years away, and so you there's absolutely no chance that the telescope can physically resolve the star or even the separation between the planet and the star is or is too small, especially for a telescope like Kepler, it's only a metre across in principle, you can make those detections, but you need a different kind of telescope we call that direct imaging, and direct imaging is a very exciting distinct way of detecting planets. But it, as you can imagine, is going to be far easier to detect planets which are really far away from their star to do that, because that's going to make that separation really big. And then you also want the star to be really close to us, so the nearest stars. Not only that, but you would prefer that planet to be really hot, because the hotter it is, the brighter it is. And so that tends to bias direct imaging towards planets which are in the process of forming. So things which have just formed the planet, still got all of its primordial heat embedded within it, and it's glowing, we can see those quite easily. But for the planets more like the Earth, of course, they've cooled down, and so we can't see that. The light is pitiful compared to a newly formed planet. We would like to get there with direct imaging. That's the dream, is to have the pale blue dot, an actual photograph of it, maybe even just a one-pixel photograph of it. But for now, the entire solar system... Is one pixel, with, certainly with the transit method, most other telescopes, and so all you can do is see where that one pixel, which contains potentially dozens of planets and the star, maybe even multiple stars, dims for a short amount of time. It dims just a little bit, and from that, you can infer something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like being a detective, in the scene, right? It's very it's indirect clues yeah. of the existence of the planet.
0: It's amazing that humans can do that. We're just looking out in these immense distances. And looking, you know, if there's alien civilizations out there, like, let's say one exactly like our own, we're like, would we even be able to see an Earth that passes mm-hmm. in the way of its sun and slightly dims? And that's the only sign we have of that of that alien human-like civilization out there, is it's just a little bit of a dimming.
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends on the type of star we're talking about. If it is a star truly like the sun the dip that, that causes is 84 parts per million. I mean, that's just, it's like the same as a, um, it's like a firefly flying in front of like a giant floodlight at a stadium or something. That's the kind of the brightness contrast that you're trying to compare to. So it's, it's extremely difficult detection. And in the very, very best cases we can get down to that. But as I said, we don't really have any true earth analogs that have been in the exoplanet candidate yet. Unless you relax that definition, you say, it doesn't have to be a star just like the Sun. It could be a star that's smaller than the Sun. It could be these orange dwarfs or even the red dwarf stars. And the fact those stars are smaller means that for the same size planet passing in front of it, more light is blocked out. And so a very exciting system, for example, is TRAPPIST-1, which has seven planets which are smaller than the Earth. And those are quite easily detectable, not with a space-based telescope, but even from the ground. And that's just because the star is so much smaller that the relative increase in or decrease in brightness is enhanced significantly, because that's smaller size. So TRAPPIST-1e, it's a planet which is in the right distance for liquid water. It has a slightly smaller size than the Earth. Um, it's about 90% the size of the Earth, about 80% the mass. And it's one of the top targets right now for potentially having life, um, and yet, it raises many questions about um, what would that environment be like? This is a star which is one eighth the mass of the sun. It's um, stars like that take a long time to come off that adolescence. Mm -hmm. When stars first form, like the sun, it takes them maybe 10, 100 million years to sort of settle into that main sequence lifetime. But for stars like these late M dwarfs, as we call them, they can take up to a billion years or more to calm down. And during that period, they're producing huge amounts of x-rays, ultraviolet radiation that could potentially rip off the entire atmosphere. It may desiccate the planets in the system. And so even if water arrived by comets or something, it may have lost all that water due to this prolonged period of high activity. So we have lots of open-ended questions about these M-dwarf planets, but they are the most accessible. And so in the near term, if we detect anything in terms of biosignatures, it's going to be, for one of these red dwarf stars, it's not going to be a true Earth twin, as we would recognize it as having a yellow star.
0: Well, let me ask you, I mean, there's a million ways to ask this question, I'm sure I'll ask it, uh, about habitable worlds. Let's just go to our, our own solar system. What can we learn about the planets and moons in our solar system that might contain life, whether it's Mars or some of them Moons of Jupiter and Saturn. What kind of characteristics? Because you said it might not need to be Earth-like. Mm-hmm. What kind of characteristics might be we we'd be
1: looking for? When we look for life, it's hard to define even what life is, um, but we can maybe do a better job in defining the sorts of things that life does, and that provides um, some aspects to some avenue for looking for them. Any. Um, Classically, conventionally, I think we thought the way to look for life was to look for oxygen. Oxygen is a byproduct of photosynthesis on this planet. Um, We didn't always have it. Certainly, if you go back to the Archean period, um, there was, you know, you have this period called the Great Oxidation Event, where the Earth floods with oxygen for the first time and starts to saturate the oceans and then the atmosphere. And so that oxygen, if we detect it on another planet, whether it be Mars, Venus, or an exoplanet, whatever it is, that was long thought to be evidence for something doing photosynthesis. Because if you took away all the plant life on the Earth, the oxygen wouldn't just hang around here. It's a highly reactive molecule. It would oxidize things. And so within about a million years, you would probably lose all the oxygen on planet Earth. So that was conventionally how we thought we could look for life. And then we started to realize that it's not so simple because A, there might be other things that life does apart from photosynthesis. Um, Certainly, the vast majority of the Earth's history had no oxygen, and yet there was living things on it. So that doesn't seem like a complete test. Um, And secondly, could there be other things that produce oxygen besides from life? Um, A growing concern has been these false positives in biosignature work. And so one example of that would be photolysis that happens in the atmosphere when ultraviolet light hits the upper atmosphere, it can break up water vapour, the hydrogen splits off to the oxygen. The hydrogen is a much lighter atomic species, and so it can actually escape certainly planets like the Earth's gravity. That's why we don't have any hydrogen or or very little helium. And so that leaves you with the oxygen, which then oxidizes the surface. And so um, there could be a residual oxygen signature just due to this photolysis process. So we've been trying to generalize, and um, certainly in recent years, there's been other suggestions, things we could look for in the solar system and beyond. Uh, nitrous oxide, basically laughing gas, is a product of microbes. Um, that's something that we're starting to get more interest in looking for. Methane gas in combination with other gases can be an important biosignature. Uh, phosphine as well, and phosphine is particularly relevant to the solar system because there was a lot of interest for Venus recently. Um, you may have heard that there was a claim of a biosignature in Venus's atmosphere. I think it was like two years ago now. And the, the judge and jury are still out on that. Um, there was a very provocative claim and signature of a phosphine-like spectral absorption, um, but it could have also have been some other molecule in particular, sulfur dioxide, which is not a biosignature. So uh, this is a detection of
0: a gas in the atmosphere, yeah. Venus. And and uh, it might be controversial on several uh, dimensions. So one, how to interpret that, Two, is this the right gas? And three, is this even the right detection? Is this is, is there an error in the detection?
1: Yeah. I mean, how much do we believe the detection in the first place? If you do believe it, does that necessarily mean there's life there? And um, what gives? How can you have life in Venus's atmosphere in the first place? Because that's, you know, been seen as like a hellhole place for imagining life. But I guess the 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 counter to that has been that okay, yes, the surface is a horrendous place to imagine life thriving. Um But as you go up in altitude, the very dense atmosphere means that there is a cloud layer um, where the temperature and the pressure become actually fairly similar to the surface of the Earth. And so maybe there are microbes stirring around in the clouds which are producing phosphine. Mm -hmm. Um, At the moment, this is fascinating. It's got a lot of us reinvigorated about the prospects of going back to Venus and doing another mission there. In fact, there's now two NASA missions, Veritas, and Da Vinci, which are going to be going back and before 2030 or the 2030s. Um, And then we have a European mission, I think that's slated now, and even a Chinese mission might be coming along the way as well. So we might have multiple missions going to Venus, which has long been overlooked. I mean, apart from the Soviets, there really has been very little in the way of exploration of Venus, certainly as compared to Mars. Mars has enjoyed most of the activity from NASA's rovers and surveys. Um and Mars is certainly fascinating there's you know this signature of methane that has been seen there before um again there the discussion is whether that methane is a product of biology which is possible, something that happens on the earth or whether it's some geological process that we are yet to fully understand it could be a you know for example a reservoir of methane that's trapped under the surface and it's leaking out seasonally
0: so the nice thing about Venus is if there is a giant living civilization there, it'll be airborne, so you can just fly through and collect samples. Yeah, With Mars and uh, moons of uh, Saturn and Jupiter, you're gonna have to dig dig under to find the civilizations, right. de- dead or living.
1: Right, and so, yeah, maybe it's easier then for Venus because certainly you can imagine just a balloon floating through the atmosphere um, that or a drone or something that would have the capability of just scooping up and sampling. Um, to to dig under the surface of Mars is maybe feasible-ish with, you know, especially with something like Starship that could launch, you know, a huge digger basically to the surface, and you could just excavate away at the surface. But for something like Europa, um, we really are still unclear about how thick the ice layer is, um, how you would melt through that huge um, thick layer to get to the ocean. And then potentially also discussions about contamination the problem with looking for life in the solar system which is different from looking for life with exoplanets is that you always run the risk of especially if you visit there of introducing the life yourself right it's very difficult to completely exterminate every single microbe and spore on the surface of your of your rover or the surface of your lander and so there's always a risk of introducing something i mean To some extent, there is continuous exchange of material between these planets. naturally, on top of that as well. And now we're sort of accelerating that process to some degree. Um, And so if you dig into Europa's surface, which probably is completely pristine, it's very unlikely there has been much exchange with the outside world for for its subsurface ocean, you are, for the first time, potentially introducing bacterial spores into that environment that may compete or may introduce spurious signatures for the life you're looking for. And so it's it's a almost an ethical question as to how to proceed with looking for life on on those subsurface oceans. And I don't think one we've really have a good resolution for at this point. Ethical.
0: So you mean ethical in terms of concern for the like for preserving life elsewhere. Not right. like not to yeah. murder it yeah. as opposed to a scientific one. I mean so, we always
1: <laughs> worry about a space virus, right? Coming coming yeah. here or, or you know, some kind of external source and that we would be the source of that potential contamination. Or the
0: other direction. Yeah. I mean, they that, you know, the whatever whatever survives in such harsh conditions might be pretty good at uh surviving in all conditions. It might be a little bit more resilient and robust. So it might actually take a ride on us back home.
1: Possibly, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure that some people would be concerned about that. I think we would we would hopefully have some containment uh, procedures as if, if we did sample return. Or you I mean you don't even really need a sample return these days? You can pretty much send it like a little micro laboratory to the the planet to do all the experiments in you know in situ, and then just send them back to your planet the data. And so I don't think this is necessary. That especially for a case like that where you might have contamination concerns, that you have to bring samples back. Um, Although probably if you brought back Europa Sushi, it would probably sell for quite a bit with the billionaires in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> S- <laughs> sushi, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I, I would love from an engineering perspective just to see all the different candidates and designs for like the scooper for Venus and the scooper for Europa and and Mars. I haven't really looked deeply into how they actually, like the actual engineering of collecting the samples because that's the engineering of that is probably essential for not either destroying life or, or uh, polluting it with our own microbes and so on. Mm-hmm. So that that's like an enge- interesting engineering challenge. I usually for rovers and stuff focus on the on the robot on the sort of the mobility aspect of it, on the mm-hmm. robotics, the perception and the movement and the planning and the control. Mm-hmm. But there's probably the scooper is probably where the action is. the, yeah. the microscopic sample collection. So basically, you have to first clean. Your vehicle make sure it doesn't have mm-hmm. any earth-like things on it and then you have to put it into some kind of thing that's perfectly sealed from the environment so if we bring it back or we analyze it it's not um it's not going to bring anything else uh, external in yeah i don't know it'd, it'd be that'd be an interesting engineering design there
1: yeah i mean curiosity has been uh leaving these little pods on the surface quite recently there's some Neat photos that you can find online. And it's they kind of look like a uh, lightsaber hilts, which <laughs> so um the yeah to me, I, I think I tweeted something like, uh, you know, this weapon is your life, like don't lose it curiosity yeah. because it's just dumping these little vials everywhere. And it's yeah, it is scooping up these things. And the intention is that in the future, um, there will be a sample return mission that will come and pick these up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I mean, the engineering behind those things is so impressive. The thing that blows me away the most has been the landings. Um Especially, I'm trained to be a pilot at the moment, so that's the sort of, you know, watching landings has become like my pet hobby on YouTube at the moment, and how not to do it, how to do it with different levels of uh, conditions and things. But with the, you know, when when you think about landing on Mars, just the light travel time effect means that there's no possibility of a human controlling that descent. Mm -hmm. And so you have to put all of your faith and your trust in the computer code or the AI or whatever it is that you've put on board that thing to, to make the correct descent. Um, and so there's this famous uh, period called Seven Minutes of Hell, where you're basically waiting for that light travel time to come back to know whether your vehicle successfully landed on the surface or not. And during that period, you know in your mind simultaneously that it is doing these multi-stages of um, deploying its parachute, deploying the crane, activating its jets to come down and controlling its descent to the surface um and then the crane has to fly away so it doesn't accidentally hit the rover and so there's a series of uh, multi-stage points where any any of them go wrong you know the whole mission could could go awry um and so the fact that we are fairly consistently able to build these machines that can do this autonomously is to me one of the most impressive acts of engineering that NASA have achieved.
0: Yes, the unfortunate fact about physics is the takeoff is easier than the landing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, yes. And you mentioned Starship, one of the incredible engineering feats that you get to see is the reusable rockets that take off but they land and they Mm. land using control and they do so perfectly. And mm. sometimes when it's synchronous, it's it's just, it's beautiful to see. And then with Starship, you see the <laughs> the chopsticks that catch the ship. I mean, there's just so much incredible engineering. but you mentioned uh, Starships is somehow helpful here. So what's your hope with Starship? What kind
1: of science might it enable mm. possibly? There's two things i mean it's the launch cost itself, which is hopefully going to mean per kilogram it's going to dramatically reduce the cost of its the sort of the level even if it's a factor of ten higher than what Elon originally promised this is going to be a revolution for the cost to launch that means you could do all sorts of things you could launch um large telescopes, which could be basically like j w s t but you don't even have to fold them up j w s t had this whole issue with its design that it's six and a half meters across. And so you have to, there's no fuselage, which is that large at the time. The Ares Fort wasn't large enough for that. And so they had to fold it up into this kind of complicated origami. And so a large part of the cost was, Figuring out how to fold it up, testing that it unfolded correctly, repeated testing, and you know the, there was something like 130 fail points or something during this unfolding mechanism, and so all of us were holding our breath during that process. But if you have the ability to just launch, you know, arbitrarily large masses, um, at least comparatively compared to JWST and very large mirrors into space, you can more or less repurpose ground-based mirrors. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope mirror and the JWST mirrors are designed to be extremely lightweight, Mm -hmm. and that increased their cost significantly. Um, They have this kind of honeycomb design on the back to try and minimize the, the weight. If you don't really care about weight because it's so cheap, then you could just literally grab many of the existing ground-based mirrors across telescopes across the world, four-metre, five-metre mirrors, and just pretty much attach them to a chassis and have your own space-based telescope. Um, I think the Breakthrough Foundation, for instance, uh, is an entity that has been interested in doing this sort of thing. Um, And so, that raises the prospects of having not just one WST, that just, you know, WST is a fantastic resource, but it's split between all of us, cosmologists, star formation uh, astronomers, those of us studying exoplanets, those of us wanting to study, you know, the ultra deep fields and the origin of the first galaxies, the expansion rate of the universe. Everyone has to share this resource, but we could potentially each have, you know, one Uh, JWST each that is uh, maybe just studying a handful of the brightest exoplanet stars Mm -hmm. and measuring their atmospheres. This is important because if you, you we talked about this planet TRAPPIST-1e earlier, that planet, if JWST stared at it and tried to look for biosignatures, by which I mean oxygen, um, nitrous oxide, methane, it would take it of order of 200 transits to get even a very marginal, what we call two and a half sigma detection of those, which basically nobody would believe with with that. And 100 transits, I mean, this thing transits once every six days, so you're talking about sort of four years of staring at the same star with one telescope. There'd be some breaks, but it'd be hard to schedule much else because you have to continuously catch each one of these transits to build up your signal to noise. And so JWST is never gonna do that. In principle, technically JWST could technically have the capability of just about detecting a biosignature on an Earth-like planet around a a non-Sun-like star, but still, impressively, we have basically the technology to do that, but we simply cannot dedicate all of its time practically to that one resource. And so Starship opens up opportunities like that of mass-producing these kinds of telescopes, which will allow us to survey Life in the universe, which of course is one of the grand goals of astronomy. I wonder if you can speak
0: to the the bureaucracy, the political battles, the scientific battles for for time on the James Webb Telescope. Isn't, <laughs> I, is there a, there must be a fascinating it's process of scheduling that all scientists are trying to collaborate, and figure out what the most important problems are, and there's an interesting network of interfering scientific experiments, probably, they have to somehow
1: optimize over. It's it's a really difficult process. I don't envy the TAC that are gonna to have to make this decision. We call it the TAC, the Time Allocation Committee, that, that make this decision. Um, and I've served on these before, and it's very difficult. I mean, typically for Hubble, we we were seeing at least 10, sometimes 20 times the number of proposals for telescope time versus available telescope time. For JWST there has been one call already that has gone out. We call it cycle one. And that was oversubscribed by, I think something like six to one, seven to one. And uh, the cycle two, which has just been announced uh, fairly recently, and the deadline is actually the end of this month. So my team are totally laser focused on writing our proposals right now. um, That is expected to be much more competitive, probably more comparable to what Hubble saw. And so... It's hard. More competitive than the second one you said already, because that's already more super competitive clear. than the first cycle. So yeah. like I said the first cycle of James Webb was about six to one, um, <laughs> and this will probably be more like twenty to one.
0: I would expect. So these are all proposals by scientists and so on, and it's not like you can schedule at any time. Because if you're looking for transit times, yeah, you, uh, you
1: have you have a, a time critical element. Yes, your, time critical element, yeah.
0: and they're conflicting in non like non obvious ways. Because the, the the frequency is different, the, the duration is different. Right. There's a, there's probably computational needs yeah. that are different. Uh, the t- there's the type of sensors, the direction
1: pointing, all that. Yeah, it, it's hard, and there are certain programs like doing a deep field study where you just more or less point the telescope. And that's pretty open. I mean, you're just accumulating photons. You can just point at that at that patch of the sky um whenever the telescope's not doing anything else and just get to your month, let's say a month of integration time is your is your goal over the lifetime of JWST. So that's maybe a little bit easier to schedule. It's harder, especially for us looking at cool worlds, um, because as I said earlier, these these plants transit very infrequently. Mm-hmm. So we have to wait. If you're looking at the Earth transiting the Sun, an alien watching us, they they would only get one opportunity per year to do that observation. The transit lasts for about 12 hours, um, and so if they don't get that time, it's hard. You, you, that's it. Uh, if it conflicted with another proposal that wants to do use the, uh, another time critical element, it's much easier for planets like uh, these hot these hot planets or these close-in planets um, because they transit so frequently. There's maybe a hundred opportunities, and so then the TAC can say, "Okay, they want ten transits." There's a hundred opportunities here. It's easier for us to give us t- to give them time. Um, we're almost in the worst case scenario. We're proposing to look for exoplanets around two cool planets, mm-hmm. and so we really only have one bite of the cherry for each one. And so our sales pitch has been that these are extremely precious events, and more importantly, JWST. Is the only telescope, the only machine humanity has ever constructed which is capable of finding moons akin to the moons in our solar system. Kepler can't do it, even Hubble can't do it. JDRC is the first one. And so there is a new window to the universe. Because we know these moons exist. They they're all over the place in the solar system. You have the moon, you have Io, Callisto, Europa, Ganymede, Titan, lots of moons of fairly similar size, sort of 30% the size of the Earth. And this telescope is the first one that can find them. Um, And so we're very excited about the profound implications of ultimately solving this journey we're on in astronomy, which is to understand our uniqueness. We want to understand how common is the solar system. Are we the way, are we the architecture that frequently emerges naturally, or is there something special about what happened here?
0: I think this is not the worst case, the best case. It's obvious, it's super rare. (laughs) So you have to like, I would, so I love scheduling from a computer science perspective, Mm -hmm. that's my background. So algorithmically, to solve a schedule problem, I would schedule the rarest things first. Yep. And obviously this is the, the JWST is the first thing that can actually detect a cool world. So this is a big new thing. You can show off that new thing, it happens rarely, schedule it first, it's perfect. You should it's, be in the tech, this yeah, is perfect. I, <laughs> I will, I'll file my application after we're done with this. I, I, you know, this part of me is the OCD, part of me is the computational aspect, I love scheduling, uh, computing device. Because you have that kind of scheduling on supercomputers, On that scheduling problem is fascinating. How do you yeah. prioritize? computation, how do you prioritize science, uh, data collection, uh, sample collection, all that kind of stuff. It's actually kind of, it's kind of fascinating because data in ways you expect and don't expect will unlock a lot of solutions to uh, some fascinating mysteries. And so collecting the data and doing so in a way that maximizes the possibility of discovery is really interesting like from yeah. a computational perspective.
1: I agree, there's there's a real satisfaction in extracting the maximum science per yeah. unit time yeah, exactly. out of your telescope, <laughs> exactly. and that, that's that's the TAC's job. Um, yeah. But the the TAC are not machines, they're not a piece of computer code. Um, they will make their selections based off human judgment. And um, a lot of the telescope, is certainly within the field of exoplanets, because there's different fields of astronomy, but within the field of exoplanets, I think a good expectation is that most of the telescope time that JWST have will go towards atmospheric retrieval, which is uh, sort of alluded to earlier, you know, like detecting molecules in the atmospheres, not biosignatures, because as I said, it's really not designed to do that. It's pushing JWST probably too far to expect it to do that. But it could detect, for example, a carbon dioxide rich atmosphere on TRAPPIST 1E. That's not a biosignature but you could prove it's like a Venus in that case, or maybe like a Mars in that case. Like Both those have carbon dioxide-rich atmospheres. Doesn't prove or disprove the existence of life either way, but it is our first characterization of the nature of those atmospheres. Maybe we can even tell the pressure level and the temperature of those atmospheres. So that's very exciting, but... um there's, we, we are competing with that, and that, I, I think that science is completely mind-blowing and fantastic. We have a completely different objective, which is, in our case, to try and look for the first evidence of these small moons around these planets, um, potentially even moons which could be habitable, of course, so I think it's a very exciting goal. But um and has to make a human judgment, essentially, about which science are they most excited by, which one has the highest promise of return, the most uh, highest chance of return. And so that's hard because if you look at a, a planetary atmosphere, well, you know, most of the time the planet has an atmosphere already. It, it, and so there's almost a guaranteed success that you're going to learn something about the atmosphere mm-hmm. by pointing JWST at it. Whereas in our case, there's a harder sell. We are looking for something that we do not know for sure exists yet or not. And so we are pushing the telescope to do something which is inherently more risky
0: yeah but the existence if shown already gives a deep uh lesson about what's out there in the universe that means that other stars have similar types of variety as we have in our solar system they have an io they have a europa and so on which means like there's a lot of possibility for icy planets for water for planets that enable for planets and moons that i mean that that's super exciting because that that means Everywhere through our galaxy and beyond, there is just innumerable possibility for weird creatures.
1: I agree. Life forms. You don't have to convince me. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, NASA NASA has been on this quest for a long time, and it's sometimes called Eater Earth. It's the frequency of Earth like, usually they say planets in the universe. How common are planets similar to our Earth in terms of? um ultimately we'd like to know everything about these planets in terms of the amount of water they have, how much atmosphere they have, but for now it's kind of focused just on the size and the distance from the star essentially how How often do you get similar conditions to that um That was Kepler's primary mission, and it, it really just kind of flirted with the answer it didn't quite get to a definitive answer but I always say look if we're looking if if that's our primary goal to look for earth like i would say worlds then moons has to be a part of that because we know that um, Earth-like, from the Kepler data, the preliminary result is that Earth-like planets around sun-like stars is not an inevitable outcome. It seems to be something like a one to 10% outcome. So it's not particularly inevitable that that happens. But we do often see about half of all sun-like stars have either a mini-Neptune, a Neptune, or a Jupiter mm. in the habitable zone of their stars. That's a very, very common occurrence that we see yet we have no idea how often they have moons around them which could also be habitable. And so there may very well be, if if even one in five of them has an Earth-like moon or even a Mars-like moon around them, Mm -hmm. then there would be more habitable real estate in terms of exomoons than exoplanets in the universe. So you can
0: essentially, Two x, three x, five x, maybe ten x the number of habitable, habitable worlds mm-hmm. out there in the universe. Uh, our current estimate for like the Drake equation.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So
0: this this is a one way to increase the confidence and increase the the value of that parameter.
1: And just know where to look. I mean, we we would like to know where should we listen for techno signatures? Where should we be looking for biosignatures? Um, and not only that, but what role does the does the Moon have in terms of its influence on the planet? Um, We talked about these directly imaged telescopes earlier, these missions that want to take a photo, to quote Carl Sagan, the pale blue dot of our planet, but the pale blue dot of an exoplanet. And that's the dream to one day capture that. But as impressive as the resolution is that we are planning and conspiring to design for the future generation telescopes to achieve that, even those telescopes will not have the capability of resolving the Earth and the Moon within that. It'll be a pale blue dot pixel, but the moon's gray, grayness will be intermixed mm-hmm. with that pixel. And so this is a big problem because one of the ways that we are claiming to look for life in the universe is a chemical disequilibrium. So you see two molecules that just shouldn't be there. They normally react with each other, or even one molecule that's just too reactive to be hanging around the atmosphere by itself. So if you had um, oxygen and methane hanging out together, those would normally react fairly easily. And so if you detected those two molecules in your pale blue dot spectra, you'd be like, okay, we have evidence for life. Something's metabolizing on this planet. Um, However, the challenge here is what if that moon was Titan? Titan has a methane-rich atmosphere. And what if the pale blue dot was in fact a planet devoid of life, but it had oxygen because of water Undergoing this photolysis reaction, splitting into oxygen and hydrogen separately. So then you have all of the uh, hallmarks of what we would claim to be life. Mm-hmm. But all along you were tricked; it was just a moon that was de- deceiving you. And so we are never going to—we're never going. To, I would claim really understand the or, or complete this quest of looking for life, biosignatures in the universe, unless we have a deep knowledge of the prevalence and role that moons have. They may even affect the habitability of the planets themselves. Of course, our own moon is freakishly large. By mass ratio, it's the largest moon in the solar system. It's a 1% mass moon. If you look at Jupiter's moons, they're like 10 to the power minus four, much smaller. And so our own moon seems to stabilize the obliquity of our planet. It gives rise to tides. Especially early on when the moon was closer, those tides would have covered entire continents. Mm -hmm. And those, those rock pools that would have been scattered across the entire plateau may have been the origin of life on our planet the Moon-forming impact may have stripped a significant fraction of lithosphere off the Earth, which without it, plate tectonics may not have been possible. we would have had a stagnant lid because there was just too much lithosphere stuck on the top of of the planet. And so there are speculative reasons, but intriguing reasons as to why a large Moon may be not just important, but central to the question of having the conditions necessary for life. So Moons can be habitable in their own right, but they can also play significant influence on the habitability of the planets they orbit. And further, they will surely interfere with our attempts to detect life remotely from afar. So uh,
0: taking a tangent upon a tangent, uh, you've written about uh, binary planets. What's And that they're surprisingly common or they might be surprisingly common. What's the difference between a large moon and binary planets? What what, what are binary planets? What, uh, what What's interesting to say here about giant rocks flying through space mm-hmm. and orbiting each other?
1: The thing that's interesting about binary objects is that they're very common in the universe. Binary stars are everywhere. In fact, the majority of stars seem to live in binary systems. Um, when we look at the outer edges of the solar system, we see binary Kuiper Belt objects all the time, asteroids basically bound to one another. Pluto-Sharon is kind of an example of that. It's a 10% mass ratio system. It almost is by many definitions, a binary planet, but now it's a dwarf planet, so yeah, not, I, I don't know what yeah. you call that now. But Just, the, we, know, we know that these—you know, the universe likes to make things in pairs. Yeah. Um,
0: so you're saying our sun is an incel. <laughs> it's it's looking so most things are dating they're in relationships and ours, ours is, is alone.
1: It it's not a complete freak of the universe to be alone, but it is. Um, it's more common for sun-like stars. If you count up all the sun-like stars in the universe, about half of the sun-like star systems are in binary or trinary systems, and the other half are single. But because those binaries are two or three stars, then cumulatively, maybe like a third of all sun-like stars are single. I'm trying older. hard to not anthropomorphize the relationship
0: the <laughs> yeah, stars have with each other. Yeah, but yeah. The triplets. The triplets. <laughs> the tri- <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah I've, I've met those folks also. Um, so is there something interesting to learn about the habitability, the how that affects the probability of habitable worlds when they kind of couple up like that in those different ways? Uh, well,
1: it depends what we're talking about, the stars of the planet. Certainly if stars couple up, that has a big influence on the habitability. Um, Of course, this is very famous from Star Wars, Tatooine in Star Wars is a binary star system and you have Luke Skywalker looking at the sunset and seeing two stars come down. And uh, for years, we thought that was purely a product of George Lucas's incredibly creative mind. And we didn't think that planets would exist around binary star systems. It seems like too tumultuous an environment Mm -hmm. for a quiescent planetary disk, circumstellar disk to form planets from. And yet... uh, one of the astounding discoveries from Kepler was that these appear to be quite common. In fact, as far as we can tell, uh, they're just as common around binary stars as single stars. The only uh, caveat to that is that you don't get planets close into binary stars. They have like a clearance region in on the inside where planets maybe they form there, but they, they don't last. They are dynamically unstable in that zone. But once you get out to about the distance that the Earth orbits the sun, or even a little bit closer in, you start to find planets emerging. And so that's the right distance for liquid water, the right distance for potentially life on those planets. And so there may very well be plenty of habitable planets around the binary stars. Binary planets is a little bit different. Um, Binary planets, I don't think we have um, any serious connection of planet binarity to habitability. Certainly when we investigated it, that wasn't our drive, that this is somehow the solution to life in the universe or anything. It was really just a, like all good science questions, a curiosity-driven question. What's the dynamic, are they legit orbiting each other as they orbit uh, uh, the star? So the formation mechanism proposed here, um, because it is very difficult to form two protoplanets planets close to each other like this. They were generally merged within the disk. And so that's why you normally get single planets. But you could have something like Jupiter and Saturn form at separate distances. They could dynamically be scattered in towards one another mm-hmm. and basically not quite collide, but have a very close on encounter. Now, because uh, tidal forces increase dramatically as the distance decreases between two objects, the tides can actually dissipate the kinetic energy and bring them bound into one another. So That seems when we, uh, you know, when you first hear that, you think, well, that seems fairly contrived that you'd have the conditions just right to get these tides to cause a capture. But numerical simulations have shown that about 10% of planet-planet encounters are shown to produce something like binary planets, which is a startling prediction. Um, And so that seems at odds with naively the exoplanet catalogue for which we know of so far no binary planets. Mm And we propose one of the resolutions to this might be that the binary planets are just incredibly difficult to detect, which is also counterintuitive, because remember how they form is through this tidal mechanism. And so they form extremely close to each other, sort of the distance that Io is away from Jupiter, just a few planetary radii, they're almost touching one another, and they're just tidally locked facing each other for eternity. And so in that configuration, as it transits across the star, it kind of looks like you can't really resolve those two planets. It just looks like one planet to you that's going across the star. The temporal resolution of the data is rarely good enough to distinguish that. And so you'd see one transit, but in fact, it's two planets very close together which are transiting at once. And so, yeah, we wrote a paper just recently where we developed um, some techniques to try and get around this problem and hopefully provide a tool where we could finally look for these planets. The problem of detection of these planets when they're so close That was our focus was how do you, how do you get around this this merging problem? So, whether they're out there or not, uh, we don't know. We, we're planning to do a search for them, but um, it it remains an open question. And I think just one of those fun astrophysics curiosities questions: whether binary planets exist in the universe? Because then you, you know you have binary Earths, you could have binary Neptune, all sorts of wild stuff that would you know float the sci fi imagination.
0: I wonder what the physics on a binary planet feels like. It might be trivial, I have to think about that. I wonder if there's some interesting dynamics, like if you feel multiple, or, or would gravity feel different
1: at different parts of the the surface of the sphere when there's another large sphere? That's interesting. Yeah, I would think that the force would be uh, fairly similar because the shape of the object would deform to a flat geopotential, essentially, a uniform geopotential, but it would lead to a distorted shape for the two objects. I think they would become ellipsoids facing one another. Um, so it would be pretty wild when you you know, people like flat earth or spherical earth, yeah. you fly from space and you see a football shaped earth. It's, yeah. your, it's your own
0: planet. Finally, there's proof. And I wonder how, how difficult it would be to travel from one to the other. Cause you have to overcome the one. Well, no, it
1: might be kind of easy. Yeah. I mean, they're so close to each other. That helps. And I think the most critical factor would be how massive is the planet. That's always, I mean, one of the challenges with escaping planets, there was a a fun paper one of my colleagues wrote that suggested that super-Earth planets may be inescapable. Mm -hmm. If you're a civilization that were born on a super-Earth, the surface gravity is so high that the chemical potential energy of hydrogen or, or methane, whatever fuel you're using, simply... Um, is at odds with the with the gravity of the planet itself. Mm-hmm. And so you would, uh, you know, our current rockets, I'm not sure with a fraction, but maybe like 90% of the rocket is fuel or something by mass. These things would have to be um, like the size of the, the Giza pyramids of fuel with just a tiny tip on the top in order just to escape that planet- planetary atmosphere. And so it has been argued that if you live on a super-Earth, you may be you may be forced to live there forever. There may be no escape unless you invent a space elevator or something, but then... How do you even build the infrastructure in space to, to do something like that in the absence of a successful rocket program? Um, and so, the more and more we, we look at our Earth and think about the sorts of problems we're facing, the more you see things about the Earth which make it ideally suited in so many regards. It, it's almost spooky, right? That we not only live on a planet which has the right conditions for life for intelligent life, a sustained fossil fuel industry just happens to be in the ground. We have plenty of fossil fuels to to get our industrial revolution going, Um, but also the chemical energy contained within those fossil fuels um, and hydrogen and other fuels is sufficient that we have the ability to escape our planetary atmosphere and planetary gravity to have a space program. And we also happen to have a celestial body which is just within reach, the moon, Uh, which doesn't also necessarily have to be true. Were were the moon not there, what effect would that have had on our aspirations of a space program in the 1960s? Would there have ever been a space race to Mars or to Venus? It's a much harder, certainly for a human program, that seems almost impossible with 1960s technology to imagine ever come to fruition. It's
0: almost as if somebody constructed a set of uh, challenging obstacles before us, challenging problems to solve. They're Mm -hmm. challenging, but they're doable. And there's a sequence of them. Gravity is very difficult to overcome, but we have, given the size of Earth,
1: it's not so bad that we can still actually construct propulsion systems that can escape it. Yeah, and it's the just, same with climate change. Perhaps I mean, climate change is the next major problem facing our civilization, but we know it is technically surmountable. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's it's it is, it is does seem sometimes like there has been a series of challenges laid out yeah. to. Um, progresses towards a mature civilization that can one day perhaps expand to the stars. I'm a little more concerned about nuclear weapons,
0: uh, AI, and uh, uh, natural or artificial pandemics. But yes, climate yeah, well, change of
1: I mean, plenty, plenty of, <laughs> plenty of milestones out. that we need to cross. Uh, and we can argue <laughs> about the severity of each of them. but uh, <laughs> there is no doubt that we live in a world that has serious challenges that are pushing our intellects and our will to the limit of whether we're really ready to progress to the next stage of our development.
0: So thank you for taking the tangent and there'll be a million more, but can we step back to Kepler 1625b? What mm. is it? And you, you've talked about this kind of journey, this effort to discover uh, exomoons, so moons out there mm. uh, or small, cool objects out there. Uh, where does that effort stand and what is Kepler 1625b?
1: Yeah, we, I mean, I been searching for experiments for most of my professional career. And I think a lot of my colleagues think I'm kind of crazy to to still be doing it, you know, after, after five years of not finding anything, I think most people would probably try doing something else. I even had people say that to me. They said, um, you know, professors, and I remember at a, part, a cocktail party, took me to the side, an MIT professor, and he said, um you know, you should just look look for hot Jupiters. They're everywhere. It's really, you can write papers. <laughs> they're so easy to find. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but hot Jupiters just, they're not interesting to me. I want to do something that I feel intellectually pushes me to the edge. And, and it's maybe a contribution that not no one else could do, but maybe um, is not certainly the thing that anybody could do. I don't want to just be the first to something for the sake of being first. I want to do something that feels like a meaningful, intellectual contribution to our society. And so, you know, this extra moon problem has been haunting me for years to try and solve this. Now, as I said, we looked for years and years using Kepler, and the closest we ever got was just a hint for this one star, Kepler 1625, has a Jupiter-like planet in orbit of it. And that Jupiter-like planet is on a 287-day period, so it's li- it's almost the same distance as the Earth around the Sun, but for a Jupiter. Um, So that was already unusual. I don't think people realize that Jupiter-like planets are quite rare in the universe. Certainly mini-Neptunes and Neptunes are extremely common, but Jupiters, only about 10% of Sun-like stars have Jupiters around them, as far as we can tell. When you say Jupiter, which aspect of Jupiter? In terms of its mass and uh, its semi major axis. So anything beyond about... Half an a u so half the distance of the Earth and the Sun, and something of order of um a tenth of a Jupiter mass, so that's the mass of Saturn, up to say ten Jupiter masses, which is basically where you start to get to brown dwarfs. Those types of objects appear to be somewhat unusual. Most solar systems do not have Jupiters, which is really interesting because Jupiter, again, like the moon, seems to have been a pivotal character in the story of the development of our solar system, perhaps especially having a large influence of the development of um, the late heavy bombardment and the rate of asteroid impacts that we receive and things like this. Anyway, to come back to 1625, this this Jupiter-like planet um, had a hint of of something in the data. But what I mean by that is when we looked at the transit, we got the familiar decrease in light that we always see when a planet tracks in front of the star, but we saw something extra. Just on the edges, we saw some extra dips around Mm -hmm. the outside it was right at the hairy edge of detectability we didn't believe it because um i think one of the challenges of looking for something for 10 years is that you become your own greatest skeptic and no matter what you're shown you're always thinking i've been it's like falling in love so many times and it it not working out you you convince yourself it's never going to be Okay. It's never gonna happen. Not for me, you know, this just isn't, isn't gonna happen. And so I saw that and I, I didn't really believe it because I didn't dare let myself believe it. But being a good scientist, we knew we had an obligation to publish it, to talk about the result and to follow it up and to try and resolve what was going on. So we asked for Hubble Space Telescope Time, which was awarded in that case. So we were one of those lucky 20 that got telescope time. And we stared at it uh, for about 40 hours continuously. And um, to provide some context, the dip that we saw in the KEPA data corresponded to a Neptune-sized moon Mm -hmm. around a Jupiter-sized planet, which was another reason why I was skeptical. I was like, we don't have that in the solar system. That seems so strange. And then when we got the Hubble data, it seemed to confirm exactly that. There was two really striking pieces of evidence in the data that suggested this moon was there. Another was a fairly clear second dip in light, pretty clearly resolved by Hubble. It was about a five sigma detection. And on top of that, we could see the planet didn't transit when it should have done. It actually transited earlier than we expected it to, by about 20 minutes or so. And so that's a hallmark of a gravitational interaction between the planet and the moon. We actually expected that. You can also expect that if the moon transits after the planet, then the planet should come in earlier than expected because the barry center, the centre of mass lives between the two of them, kind of like on a a balancing arm between them. And so we saw that as well. So the phase signature matched up, the mass of the Moon was measured to be Neptune mass, and the size of the Moon was measured to be Neptune radius. And so everything just really lined up. And um, we spent months and months trying to kill it. This is my strategy for anything interesting we just try and throw the kitchen sink at it and say, we must be tricked by something. And so we tried looking at the you know, the centroid motion of the telescope, but the, um, the different <laughs> wavelength channels that have, have been observed, the pixel level information. And no matter what we did, we just couldn't get rid of it. And so uh, we submitted it to Science. And I think at the time Science, which is one of the top journals said to us, um, would you mind calling your paper discovery of an exomoon? And I had to push back and we said, no, we're not calling it that. I don't, even despite everything we've done, we're not calling it a discovery, we're calling it evidence for an exo moon. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I'd wanna see this repeat two times, three times, four times, Mm -hmm. before I really would bet my house that this is the real deal. And and I I do worry, as I said, that perhaps that's my own skepticism, self skepticism going too far. But um, I think it was the right decision. And uh, since that paper came out, there has been continuous interest in this object, um, another team independently analyzed that star and recovered actually pretty much exactly the same results as us, the same dip, the same the same wobble of the planet. And a third team looked at it and they actually got something different. They saw the dip was diminished compared to what we saw. They saw a little hint of a dip, but not as pronounced as what we saw. And they saw the wobble as well. So there's been a little bit of tension about analyzing the reduction of the Hubble data. Um, and so the only way my mind to resolve this is just to look again. Uh, we actually did propose to Hubble straight after that. And we said, look, if our model is right, if the moon is there, it came in late last time. It transited after the planet. Because of the orbit, we can calculate that it should transit before the planet next time. If it's not there, if it doesn't transit before, and if we, even if we see a dip afterwards, we know that's not our moon. It's obviously some instrumental effect with the data. We had a causal prediction as to where the moon should be. And so I was really excited about that, but we didn't get the telescope time. And unfortunately, if you go further into the future, we no longer have the predictive capability because it's like predicting the weather. You might be able to predict the weather next week to some level of accuracy, but predicting the weather next year becomes incredibly hard. The uncertainties just grow and compound as you go forward into the future more and more. How
0: were you able to know where where the moon would be positioned? So you're able to tell the, the the orbiting like geometry and 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 frequency
1: yeah so from the uh, basically from the wobbles of the planet itself that tells us the orbital motion of the moon it's the reflex motion of the moon on the planet
0: isn't it just an estimate to where like i'm concerned about you making a strong prediction here because like if you don't get if you don't uh get the moon where the moon leads on the next time around, if you did get in Hubble time, couldn't that mean something else if you didn't see that? Like, because you said it, it would be an instrumental. <laughs> I feel, I I feel, um, the strong urge to disprove your, your <laughs> own, which is a really good uh, imperative, yeah, it's yeah. a good way to do science. But like, uh, this is such a noisy signal, right? Or blurry signal, maybe, yeah, uh, low resolution signal, maybe that's the but, yeah, I, I mean, mean, it's
1: it. it's a five sigma signal, so that's. That's at the slightly uncomfortable edge. I mean, it's often said that for any detection of a first new phenomena, you really want like a 20, 25 sigma detection. Then there's just no doubt that what you're seeing is real. This was at that edge. I mean, I guess it's comparable to the Higgs boson, but the Higgs boson was slightly different because there was so much theoretical impetus as to expect a signal at that precise location. a neptune sized moon was not predicted by anyone no one there's no papers you can find that expect neptune sized moons around jupiter sized planets so there's i think we were inherently skeptical about its reality for that reason um but this is science in action and when we we you know we fit the wobbles we fit the dips and we you know, we have this 3 g geometric model for the motion of the orbit and pro- projecting that forward we were, we found that about 80% of our projections led to the moon to be before, so it's not hundred percent. There is there was maybe twenty percent of the cases it was over here, but to me that was a hard enough uh, a hard enough projection that we felt confident that we could refute the X, ex- which was what I really wanted. I wanted a refutable. That's the basis of science: a falsifiable hypothesis. How can you make progress in science if you don't have a falsifiable, testable hypothesis? And so that was the 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 beauty of this particular case. So there's a numerical simulation with the moon uh that fits the data that we
0: observed and then you can now make predictions based on that simulation. Yeah. That is
1: so cool. <laughs> okay. It's fun. These are like little solar systems that we can simulate on the computer and imagine their motions um but we are we are pushing things to the very limits of what's possible and that's double edged sword. It's both incredibly exciting intellectually but you're always you're always risking to some degree the pushing too far. So I'd like to ask you about the
0: uh, the the recent paper you co-authored, an exomoon survey of seventy cool giant exoplanets, and the new candidate Kepler seventeen oh eight bi.
1: I would say this. I'd say there's like three or four candidates at this point, of which we have published two of them, uh, and to me are two are, are quite uh, compelling and deserve follow up observations. Um, and so there are. To get a confirmed detection, at least in our case, we would need to see it repeat for sure. One of the problems with some of the other methods that have been proposed is that you don't get that repeatability. So for instance, an example of a technique that would lack that would be gravitational microlensing. So it is possible with a new telescope coming up in the future um, called the Roman Space Telescope, which is basically a repurposed spy satellite that's the size of the Hubble mirror Mm. going up into space. Um, It will stare at millions of stars simultaneously and it will look to see, instead of whether any of those stars get dimmer for a short amount of time, which would be a transit, it'll look for the opposite. It'll look to see if anything can get brighter. And that brightness increase is caused by another planetary system passing in front and then gravitationally lensing light around it to cause a brightening. And so this is a method of discovering an entire solar system, but only, only, for, a, only for a glimpse you just get a short glimpse of it passing like a, you know, a ship sailing through the night, just mm-hmm. that, that one photo of it. Now, the problem with that is that um, it's very difficult. For, you know, the physics of, of gravitational lensing are, are not surprisingly quite complicated. And so there's many, many possible solutions. So you might have a solution, which is this could be a red dwarf star with a Jupiter-like planet around it. That's one solution. But another solution is that it's a free-floating planet, a rogue planet, like Jupiter, with an Earth-like moon around it. And those two solutions are almost indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally, we would be able to repeat the observation. We'd be able to go back and see, well, if the moon really is there, then we could predict its mass, predict its motion, and expect it to be maybe over here next time or something. With microlensing, it's a one snapshot event. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, it's intriguing as a way of revealing something about the exomoon population. But I always come back to transits because it's the only method we really have that's absolutely repeatable, that we'll be able to come back and prove everyone, prove to everyone that, look, on the 17th of October, the moon will be over here and the moon will look like this and we can actually capture that image. And that's what we see with, of course, many exoplanets. So we wanna get to that same point of full confidence, full confirmation, the slam dunk detection of these exomoons. um, yeah, it's it's been a a hell of a journey uh, to to try and push the field into that direction. And um, is, is there that, some resistance to the transit method? Not to the, the transit method. I just say to exomoons. So the transit method is by far the most the most popular method for looking for exoplanets. But um, yeah, as I've alluded to, exomoons is is kind of a niche topic within the discipline of exoplanets, and that's largely because there are. People, I think, are waiting for those slam dunks. And it was like the, if you go back to the first exoplanet discovery that was made in 1995 by Michel Mayor and Didier Kellos, um, I think it's true at the time that they were seen as mavericks, that the idea of looking for planets around stars was considered fringe science. And you know, I'm sure many colleagues told them, why don't you do something more safe, like study eclipsing stars? Mm-hmm. to binary star systems, we know those exist. So why are you wasting your time looking for planets? You're gonna get this um, alien moniker or something, and you'll be, you'll be seen as a fringe maverick scientist. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was quite difficult for those early planet hunters to get legitimacy and be taken seriously. And so very few people risked their careers to do it, except for those that were either emboldened to try or had maybe the career, uh, maybe like tenure or something, so they didn't have to necessarily worry about the implications of failure. And so once that happened, once they made the first discoveries, overnight, You know, everyone and their dog was getting into exoplanets, and all of a sudden, the whole you know the whole astronomy community shifted, and huge numbers of people that were once upon a time studying eclipsing binaries, you know, changed to becoming exoplanet scientists, Mm -hmm. and so that was the first wave of exoplanet scientists. We're now in a kind of a second wave, or even a third wave, where people like me, to some degree, kind of grew up with the idea of exoplanets as being normal. You know, I was 11 years old, I guess, when the first exoplanet was discovered, and so to me, it was a fairly a uh, normal idea to grow up with. Um, and so we've been trained in exoplanets from the very beginning. And so that brings a different perspective to those who have maybe transitioned from a different career path. Um, and so I suspect with exomoons and probably techno technosignatures, uh, astrobiology, many of the topics which are seen at the, the fringes of what's possible, they will all open up into becoming mainstream one day, but every there's a lot of people who are just waiting, uh, waiting for that, that assuredness that there is a secure career net ahead of them <laughs> before they commit. Yeah, it, it does seem to me that
0: ExoMoons open wider or open for the first time the door to, to aliens. So, more seriously, academically, studying. All right, let's let's look at like alien worlds. Like, mm. So, um, I think it's still pretty fringe to talk about alien life, even on like on Mars and the moons and so on. You're kind of like, you know, it would be nice, but imagine the first time you discover a living organism that's going to change. Then, then everybody will look like an idiot for not focusing everything on this because <laughs> yeah. the the possibility of the things will. It, it's possible. It might it might be super boring. It might be very boring bacteria, but even the existence of life elsewhere.
1: Yeah. some I mean, that changes everything. That means life is everywhere. Yeah. If you knew now that in five years, 10 years, the first life would be discovered elsewhere, you knew that in advance, it would surely, affect the way you approach your entire career. As a, especially someone junior in astronomy, you would surely be like, well, this is clearly gonna be the direction I have to dedicate my classes and my training and my education towards that direction. All the new textbooks, all the, (laughs) that's written, I mean, uh, and I I think there's a lot of value to
0: hedging, like allocating some of the time to that possibility, because Mm -hmm. the the kind of discovery will, the kind of discoveries we might get in the next few decades um, it feels what well, like we're on the verge of a lot of um, uh, getting a lot of really good data and having better and better tools that can process that data. So there's just going to be a continuous increase of the kind of discoveries that will open. Like, but a slam dunk, that's hard to come by.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think a lot of us are anticipating. I mean, we're already seeing it to some degree with Venus and the phosphine incident, um, but we've seen it before with Bill Clinton and the White House lawn announcing life from Mars, and there, there are inevitably going to be spurious claims, or at least claims which are um, ambiguous to some degree. There will be, for sure, a high-profile journal like Nature or Science that will one day publish a paper saying Bio signature discovered or something like that on Trappist-1 or some other planet. And then there will be years of back and forth in the in the literature. And that might seem frustrating, but that's how science works. It's in it, that's the mechanism of science at play, of people scrutinizing the results to intense skepticism. And it's like a crucible. You know, you burn away all irrelevances until whatever is left is the truth. And so you're left with this this product, which is that okay, we either believe or don't believe that biosignatures signatures are there. So there's inevitably gonna be a lot of controversy and debate and argument about it. We just have to anticipate that. And so I think you have to basically have a thick skin to some degree academically to dive into that world, and you're seeing that with um, with phosphine. It's been uh, it's it's been uncomfortable to watch from the outside the kind of dialogue that some of the scientists have been having with each other about that because um, they get a little aggressive. Yeah, and you can under- <laughs> you can you can understand why
0: because. Jealousy? I don't know. I uh, <laughs> that's me saying, not you. That's I, me talking.
1: <laughs> it, the, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's some envy and jealousy involved um, on the on the behalf of those who are not part of the original discovery. Sure. But there's also, in any case, just leave you know the particular people involved in Venus alone. In any case of making a claim of that magnitude, yeah. especially life, because life is pretty much one of the biggest discoveries of all time yeah. you can imagine scientifically. Um you can see, and I'm so conscious of this in myself when I get close to, as I said, even the much smaller goal of setting an exomoon, the ego creep in. And so as a scientist, we have to be so guarded against our own egos. You see the lights in your eyes of a Nobel Prize or yeah. um the the fame and fortune and being remembered in the history books. And we all Grew up in our training learning about Newton and Einstein, these giants of the field, Feynman, Maxwell. And you get the idea of these individual contributions, which get immortalized for all time. And that's seductive. It's why many of us with the skill set to go into maybe banking instead decided actually, there's something about the idea of being immortalized and contributing towards society in a permanent way that is more attractive than the financial reward of applying my skills elsewhere. So to some degree, that ego can be a benefit because it brings in skillful people into our field who might otherwise be tempted by money elsewhere. But on the other hand, it the closer you get towards when you start flirting with that Nobel Prize in your in your eyes, or you think you're on the on the verge of seeing something, you can lose objectivity. Uh, a very famous example of this is uh, Barnard's star. There was a planet claimed there by Peter van der Kamp. I think it was in 1968 69, and at the time, it would have been the first ever exoplanet ever claimed. And um, he he felt assured that this planet was there. He was actually using the wobbling star method, but using the positions of the stars to see them to claim this exoplanet. It turned out that this planet was was not there. Subsequent analyses by both dynamicists and theorists and those looking at the instrumental data established fairly um, unanimously that there was no way this planet was really there. But Peter van der Kemp insisted it was there despite overwhelming evidence that was accruing against him. Um, and even to the day he died, which was I think in like nine, in the early 90s, he was still insisting this planet was there, even when we were starting to make the first genuine exoplanet discoveries. And even at that point, I think Hubble had even looked at that star and had totally ruled out any possibility of what he was talking about. And so that's a problem. How do you get to a point as a scientist where you just can't accept anything that comes otherwise? Because you're it starts out with the, the dream of fame, and then it ends in a stubborn refusal to ever back down. Of
0: course, the flip side of that is sometimes you need that to have the strength to carry a belief against uh, the entire scientific community that resists your beliefs. And so it's, it's a double-edged sword.
1: That can like, happen, but it, I guess the di- the distinction here is evidence. Yes. So in this sure. case... That the evidence was so overwhelming it wasn't really a matter of um interpretation it was it was you had collect you'd observe this star with the same um the same star but with maybe ten even a hundred times greater precision for prolonged much longer periods of time and there was just no doubt at this point this planet was was a mirage um and so that's why you have to be very careful. I always say don't ever name you know my my wife my daughter like name this planet after me that you discover and i'm like i can't I can't ever name a planet after you because i'll be i won't be objective anymore how could i ever how could i ever turn around to you and say that planet wasn't real that i named after you so you you're somebody that
0: talks about and is it's clear in your eyes and in your way of being that you love the process of discovery that joy the magic of just uh you know uh seeing something a new observation a new idea right um but th- i guess the point is when you have that great feeling is to then switch on the skepticism, <laughs> like to start like testing. Um, what does this actually mean? Is is this real? What are the possible mm-hmm. uh, different interpretations that could make this a lot less grand than I first imagined? And yeah, all so both have the wander and the skepticism all in one brain.
1: Uh, yeah, I think the generally the more I want something to be true, yeah. the more I inherently doubt it, and I think that just comes from you know I I grew up. Um, with a religious family and was just sort of indoctrinated to some degree like many children are that okay this is just normal that you know there's a god and this is the way the world is uh, god created the earth and then as i became more you know well read and illiterate of, of what was happening in the world scientifically i started to doubt and it really just struck me that the hardest thing to let go of when you when you do decide not to be religious anymore And it's not really like a light bulb moment, but it just kind of happens over my over sort of eleven to thirteen. I think for me, it was happening, but it's that sadness of letting go of this beautiful dream which you had in your mind of eternal life. For you know, for for behaving yourself uh, on Earth, you would have this beautiful heaven that you could go to and live forever, and that's very attractive. And for me personally, um, that was one of the things that. Pull me against it was this. It's it's like it's too good to be true, and th- it's very convenient that this could be um, this could be so. And I have no evidence directly in terms of a scientific sense to support this hypothesis. And it just became uh, really difficult to reconcile um, my growth as a scientist. And I know some people find that reconciliation. Mm. I I have not. Maybe I will one day, um, but as a general guiding principle, which I think I, I obtained from that experience was that I have to be extremely guarded about what I want to be true because it's going to sway me to say things which, which are not true if I'm not careful. And that's, the, that's not what we're trying to do as scientists. So you felt from a religious perspective that there was a,
0: a little bit of a gravitational field in terms of your opinions, like it was affecting how you could be as a scientist like as a as a scientific thinker obviously you're really young
1: yeah i th- i think um i i think that's that's true that whenever you're when, whenever there's something you want to be true it's it's the ultimate seduction intellectually and i worry about this a lot with um with you know ufo's and with um it's it's true already with things like venus phosphine and uh searching for astrological signals we have to guard against this all the way through from however we're looking for life, however we're looking for whatever this big question is. There is a part of us, I think I would love there to be life in the universe. Um, I hope there is life in the universe, but i am um, uh been on record several times as being fairly firm about trying to remain consciously agnostic about that question. I don't want to make up my mind about what the answer is, before I've collected evidence to inform that decision. That's how science should work. If I already know what the answer is, then what am I doing? That's not a scientific experiment anymore. You've already decided, so what are you trying to learn? What's the point of of doing the experiment if you already know what the answer is? There's no point. It's so
0: complicated because, so if I'm being honest with myself, when I imagine the universe, so first thing I imagine uh, about our world is that we humans and me certainly as one, Particular human, <laughs> uh, no. Very. My first assumption is I know almost nothing about how anything works. So f- first of all, that actually applies for for things that humans do know, like you uh, know quantum mechanics and all the things that there's different expertise's that I just have not dedicated to. So even even that starting point. But if we take all of knowledge as human civilization, we know almost nothing. That's kind of mm-hmm. an assumption I have. Mm-hmm because it seems like we keep discovering mysteries and it seems like history, human history, is defined by moments when we said, okay, we pretty much figured it all out and then you realize a century later, you've <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you said that, you didn't figure out anything. Okay, so that's like a starting point. The second thing I have is, I feel like the entirety of the universe is just filled with alien civilizations. Statistically, there's the important thing that enables that belief for me is that they don't have to be human-like; they can be anything, mm-hmm. and it's just the fact that life exists and just seeing the way life is on Earth that it just finds a way. It finds a way in so many different complicated environments. It finds a way. Whatever that force is, that same force has to find a way elsewhere, also. But but then if I'm also being honest and I. I don't know how many hours in a day I spend seriously considering the possibility that we're alone. Mm. I don't know when I'm, when I, when my heart is in mind or filled with wonder, I think about all the different life that's out there. But to really imagine that we're alone, like really imagine all the vastness that's out there, we're alone, not even bacteria.
1: I would say you don't have to believe that we are alone. Um, but you have to admit it's a possibility of our ignorance of the universe so far. Um, You can have a belief about something in the absence of evidence, and Carl Sagan famously described that as the definition of faith. If you believe something when there's no evidence, you have faith that there's life in the universe, but you can't can't demonstrate, you can't prove it mathematically, you can't show me evidence of that. but is there some,
0: so mathematically math is a funny thing. Is there, I mean, the way physicists think, like intuition, mm-hmm. so
1: so basic reasoning, is there some value to that? Well, I'd say we're always, there's certainly, you can certainly make a very good argument. I think you've kind of already made one. Just the vastness of the universe is is the is the default argument people often turn to that surely there should be others out there. It's hard to imagine. Um There are a order of, 10 to the 22 stars in our observable universe. And so really the question comes down to, what is the probability of one of those 10 to the 22 planets, let's say, Earth-like planets, if they all have Earth-like planets, um, going on to form life spontaneously? That's the process of abiogenesis, the spontaneous emergence of life. Also the word spontaneous is a funny well, word. Okay, maybe we won't use spontaneous, but... um, um not not being, so say, uh, seeded by so, you know, some sure. some other civilization or something like this, it, it naturally emerges.
0: Because even the word spontaneous makes it
1: seem less likely.
0: Yeah. Like there's, there's just this chemistry and an extremely random process. Right. it could be a
1: very gradual process over millions of years of growing complexity in in chemical networks. Maybe
0: there's a force in the universe that pushes it towards interesting complexity, pockets of complexity that ultimately Creates something like life, which we can't possibly define yet. And sometimes it manifests itself into something that looks like humans, but it could be a totally
1: different kind of computational information processing system that we're too dumb to even visualize. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, it's kind of weird that complexity develops at all, right? Because um, it seems like the opposite to our physical intuition, if you're training in physics of entropy, that things should, you know, complexity is hard to spontaneously, or I shouldn't say spontaneously, but hard to emerge in general. Yes. Um, and so that's an interesting problem. I think uh, there's been, certainly from an evolutionary perspective, you do see growing complexity. And there's a nice argument, I think it's by Gould, who who shows that if you have a, a certain amount of complexity, um, it can either become less complex or more complex through random mutation. And the less complex things are, are, are stripping away something, str- something that was necessary potentially to their survival. And so in general, that's that's gonna be uh, not particularly useful in its survival, and so it's gonna be detrimental to strip away a significant amount of its useful traits. Whereas if you add something, the most uh, typical thing that you add is probably not useful at all, it's probably just, uh, it doesn't really affect its survival negatively, but it neither does it provide any significant benefit. Um, but sometimes, on rare occasions, of course, it will be of benefit, and so, if you have a certain level of complexity, it's hard to go back in complexity, but it's fairly easy to go forward with enough bites at the cherry. You will eventually build up in complexity, and that's, that tends to be why we see complexity grow in in, in certainly in, in an evolutionary sense, um, but also perhaps it's operating in chemical networks that led to the emergence of life. I guess the the real uh, problem I have with the, with the numbers game, just to come back to that, is that we are talking about a certain probability of that occurring. It may be to go from the primordial soup, however you want to call it, the ingredients that the Earth started with, the organic molecules, the probability of going from that initial condition to something that was capable of Darwinian natural selection that maybe we could define as life, um, the probability of that is maybe 1%, 1% of the time that happens, in which case you're right, the universe will be absolutely teeming with life, but it could also be uh, 10 to the power of minus 10, in which case it's one per galaxy, or 10 to the power of minus 100, in which case the vast majority of universes even do not have life within it. Or 90%.
0: or ninety. You, you said 1%, but it could be 90% if the conditions, the
1: chemical conditions of a planet are correct,
0: or mm-hmm. a moon are correct.
1: I admit that. It could be any of those numbers. And the challenge is we just have no rigorous reason to expect why 90% is any, because we're talking about a probability for probability. Mm-hmm. Is, is 90% more a priori likely than 10 to the power minus 20? Well, the thing is, we do have an observation,
0: N of one, of yeah. Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's difficult to know what to do with that, what kind of intuition you build, build on top of that, because on Earth, it seems like life finds a way. Okay. in all kinds of conditions in all kinds of crazy conditions good and it's yeah. able to like build up from the basic chemistry you could say okay uh maybe it takes a little bit of time to develop some complicated technology like mitochondria i, I don't know like photosynthesis fine but it seems to figure it out figure it out and like
1: do it extremely well yeah so, but i would say you're describing a different process i mean um maybe i'm i'm at fault for separating these two two processes but to me you're describing basically natural selection evolution at that point um, whereas i'm really describing abiogenesis which is to me a separate distinct process
0: do you limit it to human scientists yes but why would it be a separate process why why is the birth of life a separate process from the process of life a uh, like why is the i mean we're uncomfortable with the we're comfortable with the big bang well I'm comfortable with the first thing I think like where does this come from
1: Right so I think I would say I just twist that question around so what you're saying why is it a different process um why and I would say why shouldn't it be a different process which isn't really a good defense except to say that we 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 have we have knowledge of how natural evolution natural selection evolution works we've think we understand that process. We have almost no information about the earliest stages of how life emerged on our planet. It may be that you're right, and it is a part of a continuum. It may be that it is also a distinct, improbable set of circumstances that led to the emergence of life. As a scientist, I'm just trying to be open-minded to both possibilities. If I assert that life must be everywhere, To me, you run the risk of experimenter's bias. Um, If you think you know what the answer is, if you look at an Earth-like planet and you you are preconditioned to think there's a 90% chance of life on this planet, it's going to, at some level, affect your interpretation of that data. Whereas if I, however critical you might be of the agnosticism that I impose upon myself, remain open to both possibilities, then I trust in myself to make a fair assessment as to the reality of that evidence for life.
0: Yeah, but I I wonder sort of scientifically, and and, and that's really beautiful to hear, <laughs> and inspiring to hear. Uh, I I wonder scientifically how many firsts we truly know of, like, and then we don't eventually explain as as a, as actually uh, a. A, a step number one million mm-hmm. in a long process, mm. so I think that's a really interesting thing. If there's truly first in this universe, like you know, for us, the whatever happened at the Big Bang is is a kind of first, the origin of stuff. But it just again. Um, It seems like history shows that we'll figure out that it's actually a continuation or something. But then physicists say that time is emergent and then our causality in time is is a very human kind of construct, that it's very possible that all of this... So there could be really firsts of a thing to which we attach a name. So whatever we call life, maybe there is an origin of it.
1: Yeah, and I would also say, I'm open to the idea of it being part of a continuation, but the continuation maybe is more broader and it's a continuation of, Chemical systems and chemical networks, and what we we call this one particular type of chemistry and this behavior of chemistry life, Um, but it is just one manifestation of all the trillions of possible permutations in which chemical reactions can occur, and we we assert specialness to it because that's what we are, and so this is it's also true of intelligence. You could extend the same thing and say you know we're we're looking for intelligent life in the universe, and then you sort of where does where do you define intelligence? Where where's that continuum of of something that's really like us? Are we alone? There may be a continuum of chemical systems, a, chem, a continuum of intelligences out there, and um, we have to be careful of our own arrogance of of assuming specialness about what we are—that we are some distinct category of phenomena—whereas the universe doesn't really care about what category we are it's just doing what it's doing and doing everything in you know infinite infinite diversity and infinite combinations essentially what it's doing and so we are we are taking this one slice and saying no this has to be treated separately and um i i'm open to the idea that it could be a, a truly separate phenomena but it may just be like a like a snowflake every snowflake's different it may just be that this one particular Iteration is another variant of the vast continuum.
0: Yeah, maybe the algorithm of natural selection itself is an invention of Earth. I kind of also tend to suspect that this this whatever the algorithm is, it kind of operates at all levels throughout the universe. Mm-hmm. But maybe this is a very kind of peculiar thing that um where there's a bunch of chemical systems that compete against each other. Somehow, for survival under limited resources, and that's a very Earth-like thing. Mm-hmm. We have a nice balance of there's a large number of resources enough to have a bunch of different kinds of systems competing, but not so many that um, they they get lazy. Yeah, and maybe that's why bacteria were very lazy for a long time. Maybe they had they didn't have much competition.
1: Quite possibly. I mean, I I try to as as fun as it is to get into the speculation about. Um, the definitions of of life and what life does, and this, this g- gross network of possibilities. Honestly, for me, the strongest argument for remaining agnostic is is to avoid that that bias in assessing data. I and mean, we've see, we've seen it. I mean, Percival Lowell, I talked about on my channel, um, and maybe last year or two years ago. You know, who's a very famous astronomer who, in the nineteenth century, was claiming the evidence of canals on Mars. And from him, from his perspective, and even at the time, culturally, it was widely accepted that Mars would, of course, have life. I mean, I think it seems silly to us, but it was kind of similar arguments to what we're using now about exoplanets that, well, of course, there must be life in the universe. How could it just be here? And so it seemed obvious to people that when you looked at Mars with its polar caps, even if you know its atmosphere had seasons, it seemed obvious to them that that too would be a place where life not only was present but had emerged to a civilization which actually was fairly comparable in technology to our, our own because it was building canal systems. Um, of course, a canal system seems a bizarre techno signature to us, but it was a product of their time. To them, that was the cutting edge in technology. It, it should be a warning shot, actually, a little bit for us that if we think, you know, solar panels or building Starlinks or whatever, space mining is like an inevitable techno signature, that may be laughably antiquated compared to what other civilizations far more advanced than us may be doing. And so anyway, Percival Lowell, he was, he, I think, was a product of his time that he thought life was there. Inevitably, he even wrote about it extensively. And so when he saw these lines, these linea on, on the surface of Mars, to him it was just obvious they were canals. And he was, he that was experimentous bias playing out. He was told, for one, that he had basically the greatest eyesight um, out of any of his peers. An ophthalmologist had told him that in Boston, mm-hmm. that his eyesight was you know absolutely spectacular. So he just c- was convinced everything he saw was was real. Um, and secondly, he was convinced there was life there. And so it, to him, it just added up. And then that kind of wasted you know decades of research of of treating the idea of mars being inhabited by this canal civilization um but on the other hand it's maybe not a waste because it is a lesson in history of how we should be always on guard against our own preconceptions and biases about what yeah. whether life is out there and furthermore what types of things life might do if it is there if I were running this simulation,
0: which we'll also talk about because you make the case against it, but if I were running a simulation, I would definitely put you in a room with an alien <laughs> and just to see you <laughs> mentally freak out for hours at a time. Oh, well. You, you no, for sure clear. would have thought you will be convinced that you've lost your mind. I mean, you, uh, no, not, not, not that, but I mean, like if we discover life, we discovered interesting new physical phenomena, I think the right approach is definitely to be extremely skeptical and be very, very careful about things you want to be true. That's, that's, yeah. I would say I'm not,
1: I'm not like some extreme denialist of, of evidence. If there was, if there was compelling evidence for life on another planet, I would be the first one to be celebrating that and be shaking hands with the alien on the White House (laughs) lawn, whatever. That would be, you know, I grew up with Star Trek and that was my fantasy was to, you know, be Captain Kirk and fly across the stars, meaning of the civilization. So there's nothing more I'd want to be true, as I've said, but, um, we, we just, have to guard against it when we're we're assessing data. Um, but uh, I'm I have to say I'm very skeptical that we will ever have that uh, Star Trek moment. <laughs> even if even if there are other civilizations out there, they're never going to be at a, at a point which is in technological lockstep with us, similar level of development. Even uh, intellectually, the idea that they could uh, have a conversation with us, even through a translator. I mean, we can't communicate with humpback whales. We can't communicate with dolphins in a meaningful way. We can sort of bark orders at them, but we can't uh, have abstract conversations with them about things. Um, And so the idea that we will ever have that fulfilling conversation, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of. And I think a lot of us are drawn to that. It is maybe a replacement for God to some degree, that that father figure civilization that might step in, teach us the air of our ways, and bestow wisdom upon our civilization. But they could equally be a giant fungus that has doesn't even understand the idea of sociali- socialization because it's the only entity on its planet. It just mm-hmm. swells over the entire surface and it doesn't it's incredibly intelligent because maybe each node communicates with each other to create essentially a, a giant neural net. Mm-hmm. But it has no sense of what communication even is. And so alien life is out there is surely gonna be extremely diverse. I'm pretty skeptical that we'll ever get that that f- fantasy moment I always had as a kid of having a dialogue within the civilization. So dialogue, uh, yes, what about noticing them? What about noticing signals?
0: Do you hope, so one thing we've been talking about is getting signatures, biosignatures, mm. technosignatures about other planets, maybe, uh, if we're extremely lucky in our lifetime to be able to meet life forms, uh, get evidence of living or dead life forms on Mars or the, mm-hmm. the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, what about getting signals from outer space, interstellar signals? Uh, what kind of what, what would those signals potentially
1: look like? Um, That's a hard question to answer because we are we are essentially engaging in xenopsychology to some degree. What are the activities of another civilization? But a lot of that. Isn't what does the
0: word xenopsychology? I apologize to interrupt, mean
1: uh, well, maybe I'm I'm just fabricating that word really. But it's you know, awesome. trying to guess at the um the machinations and motivations sure. of another intelligent being that mm-hmm. was completely evolutionary divorced from us. So it's like like you said, exo-moons, it's exopsychology, extrasolar yeah. psychology. Yeah. Uh, alien psychology is another way of maybe making it more grounded, but um, the, it, it, we, we can't really guess at their, at their motivations too well, but we can look at the sorts of behaviors we engage in and at least look for them. Um, we're always guilty that when we look for biosignatures, we're really looking for, and even when we look for planets, we're looking for templates of Earth. Mm-hmm. When we look for biosignatures, we're looking for templates of Earth-based life. When we look for tetanus signatures, we tend to be looking for templates of our own behaviors or extrapolations of our behaviors. Um, so exa- we've, there's a very long list of technosignatures signatures that people have suggested we could look for. The earliest ones were, of course, radio beacons. That was sort of Project OSMA that Frank Drake was involved in, um, trying to look for radio signatures, which could either be um, just like blurting out high power radio signals saying, hey, we're here, or could even have encoded within them galactic encyclopedias for us to unlock, which has always been the allure of the radio technique. Um, But there could also be unintentional signatures. Um, For example, you could have something like the satellite system that we've produced around the Earth, the artificial satellite system, uh, Starlink-type systems we mentioned. You could detect the glint of light across those satellites as they orbit around the planet. Um, You could detect a geostationary satellite belt, which would block out some light as the planet transited across the star. You could detect solar panels, potentially spectrally, on the surface of the planet. Heat island effects, New York is hotter than New York State by a couple of degrees because of the heat island effect of the city, and so you could thermally map different planets and detect these. So there's a large array of things that we do that we can go out and hypothesize we could look for and then on the furthest end of the scale, you have things which go far beyond our capabilities, such as um, warp drive signatures, which have been proposed. You get these bright flashes of light, or even gravitational wave detections from LIGO could be detected. Um, you could have Dyson spheres—the idea of covering a, basically a star is completely covered by some kind of structure which collects all the all the light from the star to power the civilization—and that would be pretty easily detectable to some degree because you're you're. Transferring all of the visible light thermodynamically, it has to be re-emitted, so it would come out as infrared light. So you'd have an incredibly bright infrared star, yet one that was visibly not present at all. And so that would be a uh, pretty intriguing signature to look yeah. for. But well, uh, is there efforts to look for something like that for for, for different
0: Dyson spheres out there for with the, with the, the strong infrared signal?
1: There has been, one? yeah, there has been, and there's been. Uh, I think in the literature there was one with the IRAS satellite, which is an infrared satellite. They targeted, I think, a order of 100,000 stars, mm-hmm. uh, nearby stars, and found no convincing examples of what looked like a Dyson sphere star. And then Jason Wright and his team um, extended this, I think, using WISE, which is another infrared satellite, um, to look around galaxies. So could an entire galaxy have been converted <laughs> into Dyson spheres or a significant fraction of the galaxy, which is basically the uh, the Kardashev Type 3, right? Type this three. is the when you've basically mastered the entire galactic (laughs) pool of resources. And uh, again, out of 100,000 nearby galaxies, there appears to be no compelling examples of what looks like a Dyson galaxy, if you want to call it that. Um, So that by no means uh, proves that they don't exist or don't happen, but it seems like it's an unusual behavior for a civilization to get to that stage of development and start harvesting the entire stellar output unusual yes i and i mean ligo is super interesting with gra-
0: uh, with gravitational waves if that kind of experiment could start seeing some weirdness some weird signals some that compare to the to the power of cosmic phenomena
1: yeah yeah i mean it's a whole new window to the universe not just in terms of astrophysics but potentially for technosignatures as well i have to say with the with the warp drives i am skeptical that warp drives are possible because you have you have kind of a fundamental problem in relativity. You can either really have relativity, faster than light travel, or causality. You can only choose two of those three things. You really can't have all three in a coherent universe. If you have all three, you basically end up with the possibility of these kind of temporal paradoxes and time loops and grandfather paradoxes. Well, can't there be pockets of causality? Something like that? Like where there's uh, like pockets of consistent causality? You could design it in that way. You could be, you know, if you had a warp drive or a time machine, essentially, you could be, You know, you can be very conscious and careful of the way you use it, so as to not to cause paradoxes or just do it in a local area or something. But the real fundamental problem is you always have the ability to do it, and so in a in a vast cosmic universe, if time machines were all over the place. that there's too much risk of someone doing it, right? Of somebody having the option of of essentially breaking the universe with it. With this. So this is a fundamental problem. Hawking uh, has this chronology protection conjecture, where he said that essentially that it's this just can't be allowed because it breaks it breaks all our laws of physics if time travel is possible. Our current laws of physics, yes. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so. We'd need to rip up relativity. I mean, that's the point. is the current laws of physics. So you'd have to rip up our current law of relativity to make sense of how FTL could live in that universe. Because you can't have relativity, FTL, and causality sit nicely and play nicely together.
0: But we currently ha- don't have quantum mechanics and relativity playing nice together anyway. So it's not Correct. like everything yeah. is
1: all a nice yeah. little fact. It's certainly not the full picture. There must be more to go. Yeah. But um, so it's already ripped up. So might as well rip it up a little more. And, then,
0: yeah. and in the process I actually try to connect the two things because maybe in the unification of uh, of the standard model and uh, general relativity maybe there lies some kind of new wisdom about mm-hmm. of, 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 about warp drives so by the way warp drives is somehow messing with the fabric of the universe to be able to travel faster than the speed of light yeah you're, you're,
1: you're basically bending space time you could also do it with a wormhole or uh, tack you know some of the uh, hypothetical FTL, system doesn't have to necessarily be uh, the Alcubierre drive, the warp drive. It could be any faster-than-light system, as long as it travels superluminally, it will violate causality. And presumably, that will be observable with LIGO. Uh, like, potentially, yeah, potentially. Depends on, I think, you know, the properties of whatever the spacecraft is. Um I mean, one one problem with warp drives is there's all sorts of problems with warp drives, but. <laughs> but Like the start of that sentence. One problem. (laughs) There's just this one minor problem (laughs) that we have to get around. But uh, when it arrives at its destination, it basically collects this vast... uh, It has like an event horizon almost at the front of it. And so it collects collects all this radiation at the front as it goes. And when it arrives, all that radiation gets dumped on its destination and would basically completely exterminate the planet it arrives at. Um, that radiation is also incident within the shell itself. There's hawking radiation occurring within the shell, which is pretty dangerous. Um, and then, you know, it also has it raises all sorts of exacerbations of the Fermi paradox, of course, as well. So you might be able to explain why we don't see um a galactic empire. I mean, even here it's hard. You might be able to explain why we don't see a galactic empire if everybody's limited to Voyager 2 rocket speeds of like 20 kilometers per second or something. But it's a lot harder to explain why we don't see the stars populated by galactic empires when warp drive is eminently possible, because it makes expansion so much more trivial that um, it, it it makes our life harder. Um, There's some wonderful simulation work being done out of Rochester, where they actually simulate all the stars in the galaxy, or a a fraction of them, and they spawn a civilization on one of them, and they let it spread out at sublight speeds. And actually the very mixing of the stars themselves, because the stars are not static, they're in orbit of the galactic center, and they have crossing paths with each other. If you just have a range of even like five light years, and your speed is of order of a few percent the speed of light is the maximum you can muster. You can populate the entire galaxy within something like a hundred thousand to uh, about a million years or so. So, in order a fraction of the lifetime of the galaxy itself. Um, and so, this raises some uh, fairly serious problems because if any civilization, in the entire history of the of the galaxy, decide to do that. Them, you know, either we shouldn't be here, or we happen to live in this kind of rare pocket where they chose not to populate to, and so this is sometimes called facta hearts fact a, Um as you know, the the facta is that a civilization is not here now. An alien civilization has not is not in present occupation of the Earth, and that's difficult to resolve with the apparent ease at which even a small extrapolation of our own technology could potentially populate a galaxy in far faster than galactic history. So to me, by the way,
0: yeah, the Fermi Paradox is truly a paradox for me. But I suspect that if aliens visit Earth, I suspect if they do, um, if they are everywhere, I think they're already here and we're too dumb to see it. But leaving that aside, I think we should be able to in that case have very strong obvious signals when we look up at the stars at the emanation of energy required we would see we would see we would see some weirdness that like where these are these kinds of stars and these are these kinds of stars that are being messed with yeah. like leveraging the nuclear fusion of stars to do something useful, right. like the fact that we don't really see that, like maybe you can correct me. Wouldn't we be able to, if if there is like alien civilizations running galaxies, wouldn't we see weirdnesses uh, from an astronomy perspective with the with the way the stars are behaving?
1: Yeah, I mean it. It depends exactly what they're doing, but I mean the Dyson sphere example is one that we already discussed, where a survey of a hundred thousand nearby galaxies find that they are not have all been transformed into Dyson sphere collectors. Um, you could also imagine them doing things like, we wrote a paper about like this recently of lifting, where you can extend the life of your star by scooping mass off the star. So you'd be you know, doing stellar engineering, essentially. Um, space, if you're doing a huge amount of asteroid mining, uh, you would have a spectral signature because you're basically filling the solar system with dust. By doing that, there'd be debris from that activity. And so there are um, some limits on this. Um, certainly we don't see... Uh, you know, bright flashes, which would be, you know, one of the consequences of these warp drives, as I said, is as they decelerate, they produce these bright flashes of light. We don't seem to see evidence of those kind of things. Um, we don't see anything obvious around the nearby stars or the stars that we've surveyed in detail beyond that, that indicate any kind of artificial civilization. The closest maybe we had was Boyajian star that there was a lot of interest in. There was a star that was just very peculiarly dipping in and out its brightness. And it was hypothesized for a time that that may indeed be some kind of um, Dyson-like structure. So maybe a Dyson sphere that's half built. And so as it comes in and out, it's blocking out huge swaths of the star. It was very difficult to explain it really with um, any kind of planet model at the time. But an easier hypothesis that was proposed was it could just be a large number of comets or dust or something, or maybe a planet that had broken apart, and as its fragments orbit around, it blocks out starlight. And it turned out, um, with subsequent observations of that star, which especially the amateur astronomy community made a big contribution to as well, um, that the the dips were chromatic, which was a, a real important clue that that probably wasn't a solid structure then that was going around it it was more likely to be dust dust is chromatic By chromatic I mean it looks different in different colors so it blocks out more red light than blue light if it was a solid structure it shouldn't do that it's it, sh- it shouldn't be it should be opaque right a solid metal structure or something so that was one of the clear indications and and the the behavior of in the way the light changed or the dips changed across wavelength was fully consistent with the expectations of what small particulates would do um, and so that's that's very hard. I mean, the, the real problem with alien hunting, <laughs> in, the, the, the real t- pro- I the technical say, term, this is this is this the is real the one problem. problem. Yeah,
0: the one problem with the warp drive and the one problem with alien hunting. Yes,
1: but well, I, actually, I'd say there's three big problems for me with any search for life, which includes UFOs, all the way to fossils on Mars, is that aliens have three unique properties as a hypothesis. One is they have essentially unbounded explanatory capability. So there's almost no phenomena I can show you that you couldn't explain with aliens to some degree. You could say, well, the aliens just have some super high-tech way of creating that illusion. Um, The second one would be unbounded avoidance capacity. So I might see a UFO tomorrow and then the next day and then the next day and then predict I should see it on Thursday at the end of the week but then I don't see it, but I could always get out of that and say, well, that's just because they chose not to come here. You know, they have this, uh, they can always avoid future observations fairly easily. Um, If you survey an exoplanet for biosignatures and you don't see oxygen, you don't see methane, that doesn't mean there's no one living there. They could always be either tricking their atmosphere, engineering it, we actually wrote a paper about that, how you can use lasers to hide your biosignatures as an advanced civilization. Um, or you could just be living underground or underwater or something where there's no biosignatures. So you can never really disprove there's life on another planet or on another star. It has infinite avoidance. And then finally, the third one is that that we have incomplete physical understanding of the universe. So if I see a new phenomena, which Voyage Star was a good example of that, we saw this new phenomena of these strange dips we'd never seen before, it was hypothesized immediately this could be aliens. It's like a god of the gaps but it turned out to be incomplete physical understanding. And so that that happens all the time. In the first pulsar that was discovered, same story. Um, Jocelyn Bell kind of somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek called it Little Green Man 1 because it looked a lot like the radio signature that was expected from an alien civilization. But of course it turned out to be a completely new type of star that we had never seen before, which was a neutron star um, with these two jets coming out the top of it. And so, um, That's a challenge. Those three things are really, really difficult in terms of experimental design for a scientist to work around. Something that can explain anything, can avoid anything, so it's almost unfalsifiable, and could always just be, to some degree, as you said, we have this very limited knowledge of the infinite possibilities of physical law, and we're probably only scratching the surface each time, and we've seen it so often in history, we may just be detecting some new phenomena. Well, that last
0: one, I think I'm a little more okay with making mistakes on. Yeah. Which is. Because it's exciting still. Yeah. But because no matter. So you, you might exaggerate the importance of the discovery, but the whole point is to try to find stuff in this world that's weird mm-hmm. and try to characterize that weirdness. Sure, you can throw a little green man as a label on it, but eventually it like it's as mysterious and as beautiful as as interesting as Little Green like we we tend to think that there's some kind of threshold but like there's all kinds of weird organisms on this earth that operate very differently than humans Mm -hmm. that are super interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, the human mind is super interesting I mean like uh, weirdness and complexity is is as interesting in any of its forms as what we might think from Hollywood, what
1: aliens are. So like that, that's, that's okay. Looking for weirdnesses on Mars. That, that's one of the best sales pitches to do technical signature work is that, you know, we always have that as our fallback that look, we're going to look for alien signatures. If we fail, we're going to discover some awesome new physics along the way. And so uh, even a, even uh, any kind of signature that we detect is always going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that compels us to um, have not only the question of looking for life in the universe, but it, can, it gives us a strong scientific grounding as to why this sort of research should be funded and should be executed, because it always pushes the frontiers of knowledge. I wonder
0: if we'll be able to discover and be open enough to a broad definition of aliens, where we see some kind of techno signature, uh, basically like a Turing test, like this thing is intelligent. Mm. Like, it's processing information in a very interesting way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But but you could say that about chemistry, you could say that about physics. Maybe not physics, chemistry. Like, interesting, complex chemistry, you could say that this is processing, this is storing information, mm-hmm. this is propagating information over time. So, I mean, I mean, I, it's a gray area between a living organism that we would call an alien, and a thing that's super interesting, it's able to carry some kind of intelligence.
1: Yeah, inf- information is a really useful way to frame what we're looking for, though, because it then you're then you're divorced from making assumptions about even a civilization necessarily or anything like that. So, any kind of information-rich signature, indeed, you can take things like the light curve from Voyager Star and ask what is the minimum number of free parameters or the minimum information content that must be encoded within this light curve, and the hope is that maybe from, you know a good example would be from a radio signature, you detect something that has you know, a thousand megabytes of of parameters essentially contained within it. That's pretty clearly at that point, not the product of a natural process, or it's any natural process that we could possibly imagine with our current understanding of the universe. And so thinking, even if we can't decode, which actually I'm skeptical we'd be able to ever decode it in our lifetimes, it would probably take decades to fully ever figure out what they're trying to tell us. Um, but if there was a message there, we could at least know that there is high information content and there is complexity and that this is a attempt at communication and information transfer, and leave it to our subsequent generations to figure out what exactly it is they're trying to say. What,
0: again, a wild question, and thank you for uh, <laughs> entertaining, them. <laughs> entertaining them. I really, really appreciate it but what kind of signal in our lifetime, what kind of thing you, you, do you think might happen, could possibly happen, where the scientific community would be convinced that there's alien civilizations out there? Like what, uh, so you already said maybe a strong infrared signature for something like a Dyson Sphere. That but, Yeah,
1: that's possibly, that, that's also to some degree a little bit ambiguous, um,
0: because- right, that's, that's the challenge, sorry yeah. to interrupt, is where, your brain would be, like you as a scientist, would be like, I know it's ambiguous, but this is really weird.
1: Yeah. I think if you had some, I can imagine something like a prime number sequence, Or a mathematical sequence, like the Fibonacci series, something being (laughs) broadcast Mathematically
0: provable that this is not a physical phenomenon. Right.
1: I mean, yeah, prime numbers is a pretty good case because there's no natural phenomena that produces prime number sequences. It seems to be a purely an abstract mathematical concept, as far as I'm aware. And so if we detected, uh, you know, a series of radio blips that were following that sequence, it would be pretty clear to me, or it could even be, uh, you know, Carl Sagan, suggested that pi could be encoded and that, or you might use the hydrogen line, but multiply by pi, like some very specific uh, frequency of the universe, like a hydrogen line, but multiply it by a abstract mathematical constant that would imply strongly that there was someone behind the scenes operating that. Um, Uh, uh, Sorry, stored in which phenomena though? In that that case, I think of a radio wave, but the information, I mean, we kind of toyed with this um, uh, idea in a video I did about hypothetical civilization on my channel, But one kind of fun way, I I do want to bring this conversation towards time a little bit and thinking about um, not just looking for life and intelligence around us right now, but looking into the past and even into the future to some degree or communicating with the future. And so we had this fun experiment of imagining a civilization that was born at the beginning of the history of the galaxy and being the first and what it would be like for them. And they were desperately searching for evidence of life, but couldn't find it. And so they decided to try and leave something behind for future civilizations to discover, to tell them about themselves. But of course, a radio signature is not gonna work there because it has, have a power source and that's a piece of machinery it's gonna eventually break down. It's gonna be hard to maintain that for billions of years timescale. And so you wanted something that was kind of passive that doesn't require an energy source but can somehow transmit information, which is hard to think about something that satisfies those criteria. But there was a proposal uh, by one of my colleagues, Luke Arnold, which uh, inspired a lot of us in signatures and he suggested that you could build artificial transitors. So you could be build she- sheets of material that transit in front of the star, maybe one uh, thin sheet passes across first, then two, then three, then five, then seven, so you could follow the prime number sequence of these. And so there'd be a clear indication that someone had manufactured those, but they don't require any energy source because they're just sheets of material in orbit of the star. They would eventually degrade from micrometeorites, and maybe their orbits would become destabilized, but they should have lifetimes far exceeding the lifetime of any uh, battery or mechanical electronic system that we could, at least with our technology, conceive of building. And so you can imagine then extending that, and how could you encode not just a prime number sequence, but maybe in the spatial pattern of this very complex light curve we see you could encode more and more information through 2D shapes and the way those occultations happen, and maybe uh, you could even encode uh, messages and and in depth information from You know, you could even imagine it being like a a lower layer of information, which is just the prime number sequence. But then you look closely and you see the smaller divots embedded within those that have a deeper layer of information to extract. Um, and so, to me, something like that would be Pretty compelling that there was somebody who would manifest unless it's just a a a very impressive hoax. Um that would be a pretty compelling evidence for this civilization. And actually the methods of uh, astronomy right now
0: are kind of marching towards being able to better and better detect a
1: signal like that. Yeah. I mean, to some degree it's just building bigger aperture in space, the bigger the telescope, the the finer ability to detect those minute signals. Do you think the current sort of the scientific community, another weird question, but just the observations that are happening
0: now, do you think they're ready for a prime number sequence? In in the um, sort of, if, if if we're using the the current method, the transit timing variation method, like, do you think you're ready? Do you have the tools to detect the prime number sequence?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, 200,000 stars that Kepler monitored, and it monitored them all the time. It took a photo of each one of them every 30 minutes, measured their brightness, and it did that for four and a half years. And so you have already, and Tess is doing it right now, another mission. And so you have already an existing catalog, and people are uh, genuinely scouring through each of those light curves with automated machine learning techniques. We even developed some in our own team that can look for weird behavior. We wrote a code called the weird detector, for instance. That, <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, it was just the most generic thing possible. Let, don't assume anything about the signal shape. Mm. Just look for anything that repeats. The signal shape can be anything. and we kind of learn the template mm-hmm. of the signal from the data itself? And then we it's like a template matching filter to see if that repeats many, many times in the data. And so we actually applied that and found a bunch of interesting stuff, but we didn't see anything that was the prime number sequence, at least in the Kepler data. That's 200,000 stars, which sounds like a lot, but compared to 200 billion stars in the Milky Way, it's really just scratching the surface.
0: So one, because there could be something much more generalizable than the prime number sequence, it's ultimately the question of a signal that's very difficult to compress in the general sense of what compress means. So maybe as we Mm. get better and better machine learning methods that automatically figure out, analyze the data to, to understand how to compress it, just you'll be able to discover data that's f- for some reason is not compressible. But then uh, you know, compression really is a bottomless pit because like that's really what intelligence is, is being able to compress information.
1: Yeah. And and to some degree, the more you I would imagine, I don't work in compression algorithms, but I would imagine the more you compress your signal, um, the the more assumptions that kind of go on behalf of the decoder, the more skilled they really have to be. You know, some of the a, a, a prime number sequence is completely unencoded information essentially but um if you look at the arecibo message they were fairly careful with their pixelation of this simple uh image they sent to try and make it as interpretable as possible to be that even a dumb alien would be able to figure out what we're trying to show them here because there's all sorts of Conventions and rules that are built in that we we tend to presume when we design our messages, and so if your messages assuming they know how to do an m p three decoder a particular compression algorithm, i'm sure they could eventually reverse engineer it and figure it out, but you're you're making it harder for them to get to that Point. So maybe, I always think you, know, you probably would have a two-tier system, right? You'd probably have some lower-tier key system, and then maybe beneath that you'd have a deeper compressed layer of more in-depth information. What about maybe
0: observing physical, actual physical objects? So first, let me go to your tweet as a source of inspiration. Uh, you tweeted that it's interesting to ponder that if Oort clouds are ever mined by the systems of alien civilizations, mining equipment from billions of years ago could be in our ore cloud, since the ore clouds are they 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 extend really 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 far outside the 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 actual star. Yeah. Um, that so you know mining equipment, just like basic boring mining equipment out there. I don't know if there's something interesting to say about ore clouds themselves that that are interesting to you, and about possible non shiny.
1: Uh, light emitting uh, mining equipment from alien civilization. Yeah, I mean, that thought. I mean that's kind of the beauty of the field of technosignatures and looking for life, is you can find inspiration and intellectual joy in just the smallest little thing that starts a whole thread of building upon it and wondering about the implications. And so in this case, I was just really struck by, uh, we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, the idea that stars are not static. We tend to think of the galaxy as having stars in a certain location from the center of the galaxy and they kind of live there. But in truth, the stars are not only orbiting around the center of the galaxy, um, but those orbits are themselves changing over time they're processing. And so in fact, the orbits look more like a spirograph if you've ever done those as a kid, they kind of whirl around and trace out all sorts of strange patterns. And so the stars intersect with one another And so uh, the current closest star to us is Proxima Centauri, which is about 4.2 light-years away, but it will not always be the closest star. And over millions of years, it will be supplanted by other stars. In fact, stars that will come even closer than Proxima within just a couple of light-years. And that's been happening, not just we can project that will happen over the next few million years, but that's been happening presumably throughout the entire history of the galaxy for billions of years. And so, if you went back in time, it you know there would have been all sorts of different nearest stars at right? different stages of the Earth's history, and those stars are so close that their Oort clouds um, do intermix with one another. So the Oort cloud can extend out to even a light year or two around the Earth. There's some debate about exactly where it ends. It probably doesn't really have a definitive end, but kind of more just kind of peter's out more and more and more as you go further away. Yeah, by the way, for people who don't know, no cloud, I don't know what the technical definition is, but a bunch of rocks that kind of no
0: objects that uh, orbit the 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 star and they can extend really really, really so these, far because of gravity. These
1: are objects that probably are mostly icy rich. Um, they were probably formed fairly similar distances to Jupiter and Saturn, but were scattered out through the interactions of those giant planets. Um, we see a circular disc of objects around us, which kind of looks like the asteroid belt, but just further away called the Kuiper belt. And then further beyond that, you get the Oort cloud and the Oort cloud is not a disc. It's just a, a sphere. It kind of surrounds us in all directions. So these are objects that were scattered out through, uh, three-dimensionally in all different directions. Um, and so, those objects are potentially resources for us, especially if you were planning to do an interstellar mission one day. You might want to mine the water that's embedded within those and use that as either oxygen or fuel for your rocket. And so, it's quite possible. Uh, there's also some rare earth metals and things like that as well. But it's quite possible that a civilization might use all cloud objects as a jumping off point. Um, or or in the Kuiper Belt, you have things like Planet Nine even. So that's, there might even be objects beyond in the Oort cloud, which are actually planet-like that we just cannot detect. These objects are very, very faint. So that's why they're so hard to see. I mean, even Planet Nine, it's hypothesized to exist, but we've not been able to confirm its existence because it's at something like a 1,000 AU away from us, 1,000 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun. And so even though it's probably larger than the Earth, the amount of light it reflects from the sun, the sun is what just looks like a star at that point, so far away from it, that it barely reflects anything back. It's extremely difficult to detect. So there's all sorts of wonders that may be lurking out in the outer solar system. And so this leads you to wonder, um, you know, in the Oort cloud, that Oort cloud must have intermixed with other Oort clouds in the past. And so what fraction of the Oort cloud is truly belongs to us, belongs to what was scattered from Jupiter and Saturn, what fraction of it could in fact be uh, interstellar visitors? And of course we've got excited about this recently because of Oumuamua, this interstellar asteroid, which seemed to be at the time the first evidence of an interstellar object. But when you think about the Oort cloud intermixing, um, it may be that a large fraction of comets, comets are seeded from the Oort cloud that, that eventually come in. Um, some of those comets may indeed have been interstellar in the first place that we just didn't know about through this process. Um, There there even is an example, I can't remember the name, there's an example of a comet that has a very peculiar spectral signature that has been hypothesized to have actually been an interstellar visitor, but one that was essentially sourced through this Oort cloud mixing. And so this is kind of intriguing. Um, It also, you know, the outer solar system is just such a it's like at the bottom of the ocean. We know so little about what's on the bottom of our own planet's ocean. And we know next to nothing about what's on the outskirts of our own solar system. It's all darkness. Yeah. So like,
0: that, that that's one of the things is to understand the phenomena, we need light. And we, we need to see how light interacts with it or what light emanates from it. But most of our universe is darkness. So it's... There could be a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, this is where your interest is with the cool, with the cool worlds yeah. and the interesting stuff lurks in the darkness, right?
1: Basically, all of us, you know, four hundred years of astronomy, our only window into the universe has been light, and that has only changed quite recently with the discovery of gravitational waves. That's now a new window. And hopefully, uh, well, to some degree, I guess, solar neutrinos we've been detecting from, but they come from the sun, not interstellar space. But we may be able to soon detect neutrino messages as even been hypothesized as a way of communicating between civilizations as well, or just do neutrino telescopes to um, study the universe. And so there's a growing interest in what we'd call multi-messenger <laughs> astronomy now. So not just messages from light, but messages from these other uh, physical uh, packets of information that are coming our way. Uh, but when it comes to the outer solar system, light really is our only window. There's two There's two ways of doing that. One is you detect the light from the Oort cloud object itself, which as I just said, is very, very difficult. There's another trick, which we do in the Kuiper Belt especially, and that's called um, an occultation. And so sometimes those objects will just pass in front of a distant star just coincidentally. These are very, very brief moments. They last for less than a second. Um, and so you have to have a very fast camera to detect them which conventionally astronomers don't usually build fast cameras most of the phenomena we observe occurs on hours minutes days even but now we're developing cameras which can take you know thousands of images per second um, and yet do it at the kind of astronomical fidelity that we that we need for this kind of precise measurement and so you can see uh these these very fast dips you even get these kind of diffraction patterns that come around which are really cool to look at and that's I kind of love it because it's almost like passive radar. You have these pinpricks of light. Imagine that you live in a giant black sphere, but there's these little pinholes that have been poked. And through those pinholes, almost laser light is shining through. And inside this black sphere, there are unknown things wandering around, drifting around that we are trying to discover. And sometimes they will pass in front of those little pencil-thin laser beams block something out and so we can tell that it's there. And it's not an active radar because we didn't actually you know, beam anything out and get a reflection off, which is what the sun does. The sun's light comes off and it comes back. That's more like an active radar system. There's more like a passive radar system where we are just listening very intently. And so um, I'm kind of so fascinated by that, the idea that we could map out the rich architecture of the outer solar system just by doing something that we could have done potentially for a long time, okay, which is just listening in the right way, just just tuning our instrumentation to the correct way of of not listening, but viewing the universe to catch those objects. Yeah, I mean, it's really
0: fascinating. It seems almost obvious that your efforts, when projected out in over like 100, 200 years, will have a really good map through even methods like basically transit timing, mm-hmm. high-resolution transit timing, but basically the planetary and the uh, the planet's satellite movements mm-hmm. uh, that of all the different uh, star systems out there.
1: Yeah, and it could revolutionize the way we think about the solar system. I mean, that revolution has happened several times in the past when we discovered Vesta in the 19th century. Um, that was, I think, the... The seventh planet for a while, or the eighth planet when it was first discovered, and then we discovered Ceres, and there was a bunch of asteroid objects, Janus, and so for a while the textbooks had um, there was something like thirteen planets in the solar system, and then they and then that was just a new capability that was emerging to detect those small objects, and then we ripped that up and said, no, no, we're going to change the definition of a planet, and then the same thing happened when we started looking the outer skirts of the solar system again. We found Eris, we found Sedna, these objects which resembled Pluto, and the more and more of them we found, make make, and eventually we, again, had to rethink the way we even uh, contextualize what a planet is and what the nature of the outer solar system is. Um, So regardless as to what you think about the debate about whether Pluto should be (laughs) devoted or not, which I know often invokes a lot of strong feelings, it is an incredible achievement that we were able to transform view of the solar system in a matter of years, just by basically, you know, charge-coupled devices, the things that's in in cameras, Um, though the invention of that device allowed us to detect objects which were much further away, much fainter, and revealed all of this stuff that was there all along. And so that's the beauty of astronomy. There's just uh, so much to discover, and even in our own backyard.
0: Do you ever think about this? Do you imagine what are the things that will completely change astronomy over the next 100 years? Like if you transport yourself forward 100 years, what are the things that will blow your mind when you look at, wait, what? Would it be just a very high resolution mapping of things? Like, holy crap. Like one surprising thing might be, holy crap, there's like Earth-like moons everywhere. Yeah. Another one could be just totally different devices for sensing.
1: Yeah, I think you, usually astronomy moves forward dramatically, and science in general, when you have a new technological capability come online for the first time. Um, and we kind of just gave examples of that there with the solar system. So what kind of new capabilities might emerge in the next 100 years? The capability I would love to see is not just, I mean, we're in the next 10, 20 years, we're hoping to take these pale blue dot images we spoke about. So that requires building something like JWST, but on an even larger scale and optimize for direct imaging and have to have either coronagraph or a starshade or something to block out the starlight and reveal those pale blue dots. So in the next sort of decades, I think that's the achievement that we can look forward to in our lifetimes is to see photos of other Earths. Going beyond that, maybe in our lifetimes, towards the end of our lifetimes, perhaps, I'd love it if we I think it's technically possible as Breakthrough Starshot are giving us a lot of encouragement with to maybe send a small probe to the nearest stars and start actually taking high resolution images of these objects. There's only so much you can do from far away if you want to have, and we can see it in the solar system. I mean, there's only so much you can learn about Europa by pointing Hubble Space Telescope at it. But if you really want to understand that that moon you're going to have to send something to orbit it to hopefully land on it and drill down to the surface and so the idea of even taking a a flyby and doing a snapshot photo that gets beamed back that could be doesn't even have to be more than 100 pixels by 100 pixels that even that would be a completely game-changing capability to be able to truly image these objects and um maybe at home in our own solar system We can certainly get to a point where we produce crude maps of exoplanets. Um, One of the, kind of the ultimate limit of what a telescope could do is governed by its size. And so the largest telescope you could probably ever build would be one that was the size of the sun. There's a clever trick for doing this without physically building a telescope that's the size of the sun, and that's to use the sun as a gravitational lens. This was um, proposed, I think, by Van Eschleman in like 1979. But it builds upon Einstein's theory of general relativity. Of course, that there is a warping of light, a bending of light from the sun's gravitational field, and so a distant starlight—it's like a magnifying glass. Anything that bends light is is basically can be used as a telescope. It's going to bend light to a point. Now, it turns out the sun's gravity is not strong enough to create a you know particularly great telescope here because the focus point. Is really out in the Kuiper belt. It's at 550 astronomical units away from the Earth. So 550 times further away from the sun than we are. Mm -hmm. And we've, you know, that's beyond any of our spacecraft have ever gone. So you have to send a spacecraft to that distance, which would take 30, 40 years, even optimistically improving our chemical propulsion system significantly. You'd have to bound it into that orbit. But then you could use the entire sun as your telescope. And with that kind of capability, you could image planets to um, kilometer-scale resolution from afar. And that that really makes you wonder. I mean, if we can conceive, maybe we can't engineer it, but if we can conceive of such a device, what might other civilizations be currently observing about our own planet? Um, And perhaps that is, why nobody is is visiting us? Because there is so much you can do from afar that to them that's enough. They you know maybe they can get to the point where they can detect our radio leakage, um, they can detect our terrestrial in you know, in, you know television signals, um, they can map out our surfaces. They can tell we have cities. They can even do infrared mapping of the heat island effect and all this kind of stuff. They can tell the chemical composition of our planet. And so that might be enough. Maybe they don't need to come down to the surface and study anthropology, you know, do anthropology and see what our civilization is like. Um, but there's certainly a huge amount you can do, which is significantly cheaper to some degree than flying there just by exploiting cleverly the physics of the universe itself.
0: So, your intuition is, and this very well may be true, that observation might be way easier than travel from uh from our perspective from an alien perspective, like we could get very high resolution imaging before we can ever get there.
1: It depends on what what information you want if you want um to know the chemical composition um and and you want to know kilometer scale maps of the planet, then you could do that from afar with some Uh, version of these kind of gravitational lenses. If you want to do better than that, if you want to image uh, a newspaper sat on the porch of somebody's house, you're gonna have to fly there. There's no way, unless you had, you know, a telescope the size of Sagittarius A star or something, you just simply cannot collect enough light to do that from many light years away. Um, So there is certainly uh, reasons why visiting will always have its place, depending on what kind of information you want. Um, we proposed in my team actually that the sun is is a is the ultimate pinnacle of telescope design, mm-hmm. but flying to a thousand AU is a real pain in the butt because it's just going to take so long, <laughs> and so a, a more practical way of achieving this might be to use the Earth. Now, the Earth doesn't have anywhere near enough gravity to create a substantial gravitational lens, um, but it has an atmosphere. And an atmosphere refracts light. It bends light. So whenever you see a sunset, um, just as the sun's setting below the horizon, it's actually already beneath the horizon. It's just that the light is bending through the atmosphere. It's actually already about half a degree down beneath. And what you're seeing is is that is that curvature of the light path. Um, and your brain interprets it, of course, to be following a straight line because your brain always thinks that. Um, and so you can use that bending. Whenever you have bending, you have a telescope. And so we've proposed to my team that you could use this refraction to similarly create an Earth-sized telescope. Mm-hmm. Called the Terrascope. The Terrascope, We have yeah. a great video on this. Yeah. and uh, there's, Do you have a paper on the Terrascope? I do, yeah. Great. Um, sometimes I get confused because they've heard of an Earth-sized telescope because they may have heard of the Event Horizon Telescope, mm-hmm. which took an image of, um, what's it, taking an image right now of the center of our black hole. And it's very impressive and previously did Messier 87, a nearby supermassive black hole. And so those images were interferometric. So they were small telescopes scattered across the earth and they combined the light paths together interferometrically to create effectively an earth-sized angular resolution. Telescopes always have two properties. There's the angular resolution, which is how small of a thing you can see on the surface. And then there's the magnification, how much brighter does that object get versus just uh, your eye or some small object now what what the event horizon telescope did it traded off um amplification or magnification for for the angular resolution that's what it wanted it wanted that high angular resolution but it doesn't really have much photon collecting power because each telescope individually is very small the telescope is different because it is literally collecting light with a with a light bucket, which is essentially the size of the earth. And so that gives you both benefits potentially, not only the high angular resolution that a large aperture promises you, but also actually physically collects all those photons. So you can detect light from very, very far away, the very outer edges of the universe. Um, And so we, yeah, we propose this as a possible future uh, technological way of achieving these, these extreme goals, ambitious goals we have in astronomy. But um, it's a very difficult system to test because you essentially have to fly out to these focus points. And these focus points lie beyond the moon. So you have to have someone who is willing to fly beyond the moon and hitchhike an experimental telescope onto it and mm-hmm. do that cheaply. If it was something doing low Earth orbit, it'd be easy. You could just attach a CubeSat to the next Falcon 9 rocket or something and test it out. it probably only cost you few tens of thousands of dollars, maybe a hundred thousand dollars. But there's basically no one who flies out that far, except for uh, bespoke missions, such as like a mission that's going to Mars or something that that would pass through that kind of space. And they typically don't have a lot of leeway and excess payload that they're willing to strap on for radical experiments. So that's been the problem with it. In theory, it should work beautifully, but it's a very difficult idea to experimentally test.
0: Can you elaborate why the
1: focal point is that far away? So, you get about half a degree bend from the Earth's atmosphere um, when you're looking at the sun at the horizon, and you get that two times over if you're outside of the planet's atmosphere, because it comes, you know, the star is half a bend to you still on the horizon, and half a degree back out the other way, so you get about a one degree bend. Mm -hmm. You take the radius of the Earth, which is about 7,000 kilometers, and do your arctan function, you'll end up with a distance that's about It's actually the the inner focal point is about two-thirds the distance of the Earth-Moon system. The problem with that inner focal point is not useful, because that light ray path had to basically scrape the surface of the Earth. So it passes through the clouds, it passes through all the thick atmosphere, it gets a lot of extinction along the way. If you go higher up in altitude, you get less extinction. In fact, you can even go above the clouds, and so that's even better, because the clouds obviously are going to be a pain in the neck for doing anything optical. Um, but the problem with that is that the atmosphere, because it gets thinner at higher altitude, it bends light less. And so that pushes the focal point out. So the most useful focal point is actually about three or four times the distance of the Earth-Moon separation. And so that's what we call one of the Lagrange points, essentially, out there. And so there there was a stable orbit, it's kind of the outermost stable orbit you could have around the Earth.
0: Um, so the atmosphere uh, does bad things to the, to, to the signal. Of, yeah, of it's a,
1: it's absorbing light. Um,
0: is that possible to reconstruct this, the to, to to remove the noise, whatever? It is. So it's just strength.
1: It's not nothing else. It's possible to reconstruct. I mean, to some degree, we do this. There's a technology called adaptive optics that can correct for what's called wavefront errors that happen through the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is turbulent. It is not a single plane of air of the same density. There's all kind of wiggles and currents in the air. And so that each little layer is uh, bending light in in slightly different ways. And so the light actually kind of follows a wiggly path on its way down. What that means is that um, two light rays, which are traveling at slightly different spatial separations from each other, will arrive at the detector at different times uh, because one maybe goes on more or less a straight path and the one wiggles down a bit more before it arrives. And so you have an incoherent um, light source. Um, and when you're trying to image reconstruction, you always want a, a coherent light source. So the way they correct for this is that this, if this path had to travel a little bit faster, uh, the straight one goes faster, and the wiggly one takes longer. The mirror is deformable, and so you actually bend the mirror on this on the on the straight one down a little bit to make it an equivalent light path distance. So the mirror itself has all these little actuators. It's actually made up of like thousands of little elements, almost looks like a liquid mirror because they can manipulate it in kind of real time. And so they scan the atmosphere with a laser beam to tell what the deformations are in the atmosphere and then make the corrections to the mirror to account for it. That's amazing. So you could, you yeah. could do something like this for the telescope, but it would be- um, It's cheaper and easier to go above the atmosphere It just fly out. I think so. It would be very. It's a very. That's a very challenging thing to do. And normally, when you do adaptive optics, as it's called, you're looking straight up. So you're, or very close to straight up. If you look at the horizon, we basically never do astronomical observations on the horizon because you're looking through more atmosphere. Mm -hmm. If you go straight up, you're looking at the thinnest portion of atmosphere possible. But as you go closer and closer towards the horizon, you're (laughs) increasing what we call the air mass, the amount of air you have to travel through. So here, it's kind of the worst case because you're going through the entire atmosphere in and out again yeah. with a telescope so you'd need a very impressive adaptive optics system to correct for that so yeah i would say it's probably simpler at least for te- proof of principle just to test it with um with 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 having some satellite that was at a much wider orbit
0: now speaking of traveling out into deep space yeah, you already mentioned this a little bit uh you uh made a beautiful video called the journey to the end of the universe and sort of at the start of that, you're talking about Alpha Centauri. So what would it take for humans or for human-like creatures to travel out to Alpha Centauri?
1: There's a few different ways of doing it, I suppose. Um, one is, it depends on how fast your ship is. That's always gonna be the determining factor. If we devised some interstellar propulsion system that could travel a fraction of the speed of light, then we could do it in our lifetimes, which is, I think, what people normally dream of when they think about interstellar you know, propulsion and travel, that you could literally step onto the spacecraft, maybe a few years later you step off on Alpha Centauri B, you walk around the surface and come back and visit your family. There would be, of course, a lot of relativistic time dilation as a result of that trip. You would have aged a lot less than people back on Earth by travelling close to the speed of light for some fraction of time. Um, The challenge of this, of course, is that we have no such propulsion system (laughs) that can achieve this, so. But do you think it's it's possible? Like, uh, so you
0: you have a paper called The Halo Drive, fuel-free relativistic propulsion of large masses via recycled boomerang photons. So uh, do you think, uh, first of all, what is that? And (laughs) and second of all, uh, how difficult are alternate propulsion systems?
1: Yeah, so the, before I took in the halo drive, there was, there was an idea, because I think the halo drive is not going to solve this problem. I'll, I'll talk about the halo drive in a moment, but the halo drive is, is useful for a civilization which is a bit more advanced than us that has spread across the stars, mm-hmm. and is looking for a cheap highway system to, to get across the galaxy. For that first step, because um, uh, just to context that, the, the halo drive requires a black hole, so that's why you're not going to be able to do this on the Earth right now. Um, but there are lots of black holes in the Milky Way, so that's the good news. So we'll come to that in a moment. But if you're trying to travel to Alpha Centauri without a black hole, um, then the, the most you know, there are some ideas out there. There was a Project Daedalus and Project Icarus that were two projects that the uh, British Interplanetary Society conjured up on sort of a 20, 30-year timescale. And they asked themselves, if we took existing and speculatively... Uh, but realistic attempts at future technology that are emerging over the next few decades, how far could we push into the, uh travel system? <clears throat> and they settled on uh, fusion drives in in that. So if we had the ability to essentially uh, either detonate, you can always imagine that like kind of nuclear fission uh, or nuclear fusion bombs going off behind the spacecraft and propelling it that way, or having some kind of uh, successful nuclear fusion reaction Um which obviously we haven't really demonstrated yet as a propulsion system, then you could achieve something like 10% the speed of light in those systems. But these are huge spacecrafts. And I think you need a huge spacecraft if you're gonna take people along. Um, the conversation recently has actually switched and that's that idea is kind of seems a little bit antiquated now. And most of us have kind of given up on the idea of people physically, biologically, stepping on board the spacecraft. And maybe we'll be sending something that's more like a micro probe that maybe just weighs a a gram or two. And that's much easier to accelerate. You could push that with a laser system to very high speed, get it to maybe 20% of the speed of light. It has to survive the journey. Probably a large fraction of them won't survive the journey, but they're cheap enough that you could maybe manufacture millions of them. And some of them do arrive and are able to send back an image or maybe even uh, if you wanted to have a person there, we might have some way of doing like a telepresence or some kind of delayed telepresence or um some kind of reconstruction of the planet which is sent back so you can digitally interact with that environment in a way which is um not real time but representative of what that planet would be like to be on the surface so we might be more like digital visitors to these planets certainly far easier practically to do that than physically forcing this wet chunk of meat to fly (laughs) light years across space to do that. Um, And so that's maybe uh, something we can imagine down the road. The halo drive, as I said, is is thinking even further ahead. And if you did want to launch large masses, large masses could even be planet-sized things. In the case of the halo drive, you can use black holes. So this is kind of um, a trick of physics. You know, I often think of the universe is like a big computer game and you're trying to find cheat codes, hacks, exploits that Mm -hmm. the universe didn't intend for you to use. But once you find them, you can address all sorts of interesting capabilities that you didn't previously have. Yeah. And um, the Halo Drive does that with black holes. So if you have two black holes, which are a very common situation, a binary black hole, um, and they're in spiraling towards each other, LIGO has detected, I think, dozens of these things, maybe even over 100 at this point. And these things, as they merge together, they uh, the pre-merger phase they're they're orbiting each other very very fast, even close to the speed of light. And so, Freeman Dyson, uh, before he passed away, I think in the seventies, had this provocative paper called "Gravitational Machines," and he suggested that you could use neutron stars as a interstellar propulsion system. And neutron stars are sort of the uh, the you know the lower mass version of a binary black hole system, essentially. In this case, he suggested just doing gravitational slingshot. Just fly your spacecraft into this uh, very compact and relativistic binary system. And you do need neutron stars because if there were two stars, they'd be physically touching each other. So the neutron stars are so small, they're like 10 kilometers across, they can get really close to each other and have these very, very fast orbits with respect to each other. You shoot your spacecraft through, right through the middle, like throwing right through the eye of a needle, and you do a slingshot around one of them, and you do it around the one that's coming sort of towards you. So one of them coming away, one will be coming towards you at any one point. And then you could basically steal some of the kinetic energy in the slingshot. In principle, you can set up to twice the uh, speed. You can take your speed and it becomes your speed plus twice the speed of the black of the neutron star in this case. And that would be your new speed after the slingshot. This seems great because it's just free energy, basically. You're not doing any, you know, you're not generating you don't have a nuclear power reactor or anything to generate this, you're just stealing it. Um, and indeed you could get to relativistic speeds this way. So I loved that paper, but I had a criticism. And the criticism was that this is like trying to fly your ship into a blender, right? This is <laughs> this is two neutron stars, which have huge tidal forces. Um and they're whipping around each other once every second or even less than a second. And you're trying to fly your spaceship and do this maneuver that is pretty precarious. And so it just didn't seem practical to me to ever do this, but I loved it. And so I, I I took that idea and this is how science is, it's iterative, it's it's you take a previous great man's idea and you just sort of maybe slightly tweak it and improve it. And that's how I see the halo drive. And I just suggested why not replace those out for black holes? Which is certainly very common, and rather than flying your ship into that uh, that hellhole of a blender system, you just stand back and you fire a laser beam. Now, because black holes have such intense gravitational fields, they can bend light into complete 180s. They can actually become mirrors. So, you know, the sun bends light by maybe a fraction of a degree um, through gravitational lensing, but you know, a compact object like a black hole can do a full 180. In fact, if you obviously if you if you went too close, if you put the laser beam too close, the black hole would just fall into it and never come back out. So you just kind of push it out, push it out, push it out until you get to a point where it's just skirting the event horizon. And then that laser beam skirts around and it comes back. Now the laser beam wants to do a gravi- I mean it is doing a gravitational slingshot, but laser, I mean light, photons can't speed up unlike like the spaceship case. So instead of speeding up, the way they steal energy is they, they increase their frequency. So they become higher energy photon packets, essentially, and they get blue shifted. So that you send maybe a red laser beam that comes back blue, it's got more energy in it. And because um, photons carry momentum, which is somewhat unintuitive in everyday experience, but they do, that's how solar sails work, they carry momentum, they push things. Um, you can even use them as laser tweezers and things to pick things up. Um, because they push, the me- it comes back with more momentum than it left. So you get a, an acceleration force from this. And again, you're just seeing energy from the black hole to do this. So you can get up to the same speed. It's basically the same idea as Freeman Dyson, but doing it from a safer distance. And there should be of order of you know a million or so or 10 million black holes in the Milky Way galaxy. Um, some of them would be even as close as sort of 10 to 20 light years when you do the occurrence rate statistics of how close you might expect feasibly want to be. They're, of course, difficult to detect because they're black and so they're inherently hard to see. But statistically, there should be plenty out there in the Milky Way. And so these objects would be natural waypoint stations. You could use them to both accelerate away mm-hmm. and to break and slow down. Oh,
0: and uh, on top of all this, you know, there's we've been, we've been talking about astronomy and cosmology. There's been a lot of exciting uh, breakthroughs in, the, in detection and exploration of uh, black holes. So the 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 boomerang fo- boomeranging photons that you're talking about. There's been a lot of work on photon rings and just all the fun stuff going on outside the black holes. Yeah. Um, so all the the garbage outside is actually might be the thing that holds a key to understanding what's going on inside. And there's the Hawking radiation. There's all kinds of fascinating stuff like. Uh, I mean, there, there's trippy stuff about black holes that I can't even, well, most people don't understand. I mean, the holographic principle with the plate mm-hmm. and the information being stored potentially outside of the black hole, I don't even, I can't even comprehend how you can project a three-dimensional object onto 2D and somehow store information where it doesn't destroy it. And if it does destroy it, uh, challenging all the physics. All, all of this is very uh, interesting. Especially for kind of more practical applications of how the black hole could be used for propulsion.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it may be that black holes are used in all sorts of ways um, by advanced civilizations. I think uh, again, it's been a popular idea in science fiction or science fiction trope that Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy, could be the best place to look for intelligent life in the universe because it is a giant uh, engine in a way, you know, a unique capability of a black hole is you can basically throw matter into it and you can get these jets that come out the accretion disks and the jets that fly out and so you can more or less use them to convert matter into energy v equals mc squared and there's pretty much nothing else um, except for you know annihilation with with its own antiparticle as a way of doing that so they have some unique properties you could perhaps power a civilization by just throwing garbage into a black hole Right, Just throwing asteroids in and you yeah. power your civilization with as much energy as you really would ever plausibly need. And you could also use them to accelerate away across the universe. And you can even imagine using small artificial black holes as thermal generators, right? So the Hawking radiation from them kind of exponentially increases as they get smaller and smaller in size. And so um, a very small black hole, one that you could almost imagine like holding in your hand would be a fairly significant heat source um, and so that raises all sorts of prospects about how you might use that in an engineering context to power your civilization as well uh, you have a video on becoming a
0: kardashev type one civilization what what's our hope for doing that We're a few orders of magnitude away from that
1: yeah it is surprising. I think people tend to think that we're close to this this scale the the kardashev type one is defined as a civilization which is using as much energy as is essentially incident upon the planet from the star. Um, So that's of order, I think, for the Earth of something like 10 to the five terawatts or 10 to the seven terawatts is a a gigantic amount of energy. And we're using a a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that right now. So, um, you know, if you became a Kardashev type one civilization, which is seen not necessarily as a goal into itself, I think people think, well, why, why are we aspiring to become this energy hungry civilization? You know, surely, Our energy needs might become, you know, might improve, improve our efficiency or something as time goes on. But ultimately, the more energy you have access to, the greater your capabilities will be. I mean, if you want to lift Mount Everest into space, there is just a calculable amount of potential energy change that that's going to take in order to accomplish that. And the more energy you have access to as a civilization, then clearly the easier that energy achievement is going to be. So it depends on what your aspirations are as a civilization. It might not be something you want to ever do, but. Well, but we should make clear that
0: lifting heavy things isn't the only thing, it's, uh, it's just doing work. So yeah. it could be computation. It could, right, be, right. it could be more and more and more and more sophisticated and larger and larger and larger computation, which is, it does seem where we're headed with the uh, v- very fast increase in um, the the scale and the quality
1: of our computation outside the human brain. Yeah. artificial computation. Yeah. I mean, computation is a great example of, I mean, already I think something like 10% of US power electricity use is going towards these supercomputing centers. So there's a yeah. there's a vast amount of our current engine needs which are already going towards computing we will surely only increase over time. Um, if we start ever doing anything like mind uploading or creating simulated realities, that, that cost will surely become almost a, a dominant source of our energy requirements at that point. If civilization completely moves over to this kind of post-humanism stage. And so it's not unreasonable that our energy needs would continue to grow, certainly historically, they always have at about 2% per year. And so if that continues, there is gonna be a certain point um, where you're running up against the amount of energy which you can harvest, because it's you're using every, even if you cover the entire planet in solar panels, um, there's no more energy to be had. Um, and so this is a, you know, there's a few ways of achieving this. I sort of talked about in the video how there were several renewable energy sources that we're excited about, like geothermal, wind power, waves, but pretty much all of those don't really scratch the surface or don't really scratch the itch of getting to a Kardashev type one civilization. They're meaningful now. I would never tell anybody don't do wind power now because it's 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 mm-hmm. clearly useful for our current stage of civilization, but it's not it's gonna be a pretty negligible fraction of our energy requirements if we got to that stage of development. And so there has to be a breakthrough in either our ability to harvest solar energy, which would require maybe something like a space array of solar panels of beaming the energy back down, mm-hmm. or some developments uh, and innovations in, in nuclear fusion that would allow us to essentially reproduce the same process of what's producing the solar photons, but here on Earth. Um, but even that comes with some consequences. If you're generating the energy here on Earth and you're doing work on it on Earth, then that work is gonna produce waste heat and that waste heat is gonna increase the ambient temperature of the planet. And so, you, whether even if this isn't really a, a greenhouse effect that you're increasing the temperature of the planet, this is just the amount of computers that are churning. You yeah. put your hand to a computer, you can feel the warmth coming off them. If you do that much work of literally, you know, the entire instant energy of the planet is doing that work. Uh, the planet's gonna warm up significantly as a result of that. And so, you know, that's uh, it. that clearly indicates that this is not a sustainable path, that civilizations, as they approach Kardashev Type I, are gonna to have to leave planet Earth, which is really the point of that video to show that it's a Kardashev Type One civilization, even though it's defined as instant energy upon a planet, that is not a species that is gonna still be living on their planet, at least. Um, in isolation, they will have to be harvesting energy from afar. They will have to be you doing work on that energy outside of their planet, because otherwise, you're going to dramatically change the environment in which you live. Well, yeah. So the
0: the it's, uh, the more energy you create, the more energy you use, the more the higher the imperative to expand out into the universe. But also not, not just the imperative, but the uh, the capabilities. Mm-hmm. And you're uh, you've kind of as a side. And your lab page mentioned that you're sometimes interested in astroengineering. Uh so what what kind of uh space architectures do you think we can build to house humans or interesting things outside of earth?
1: Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of fun ideas here. Um one of the classic ideas is an O'Neill cylinder or a Stanford torus. These are like two rotating structures that were devised in space. They're basically Using the centrifugal force as artificial gravity. Um, and so these are structures which tend to be many kilometers across that you're mm-hmm. building in space, but could potentially habitat um, millions of people in, in orbit of the Earth. Um, of course, you could imagine pulling them, if you, you know, the expanse does a pretty good job, I think, of exploring the idea of human exploration of the solar system and having, uh, many objects, many of the small near-Earth objects and asteroids inhabited by mining colonies. Um, One of the ideas we've played around with our group is this technology called a quasite. A quasite is um, an extension, again we always tend to extend previous ideas, ideas build upon ideas, but an extension idea called a statite. A statite was an idea proposed, I think, by Ron Forward in the 1970s. 1970s seemed to have all sorts of wacky ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what was going on then. We had the Stanford, I think the Stanford Taurus, the O'Neill cylinder, statites, um, the the gravitational lens. People were really having fun with dreaming about space in the 70s. Uh, the statite is is basically a, a solar sail, but it's such an efficient solar sail that the outward force of radiation pressure equals the inward force of gravity from the sun. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't need to orbit. Normally you avoid, the sun is pulling us right now through force of gravity, but we we are not getting closer towards the sun, even though we are falling towards the sun because we're in orbit, which means our translational speed is just enough to keep us at the same altitude essentially from the sun. And so you're in orbit, and that's how you maintain distance. A statite doesn't need to do that; it could be basically, you know, completely static in inertial space. But it's just balancing the two forces of radiation pressure and inward gravitational pressure. A quasite is the in between of those two states. So it's it has some significant outward pressure, but not enough to resist fully falling into the star. And so it compensates for that by having some translational motion. So it's in between. An orbit and a statite, and so what that allows you to do is maintain artificial orbits. So normally, you you know, if you want to calculate your orbital speed of a of something at say half an AU, you would use Kepler's third law and go through that, and you'd say, okay, you know, if it's at uh, half an AU, I can calculate the period by P squared is proportional to a cubed, and go through that. But for a um, a quasar, you can basically have any speed you want. It's just a matter of how much uh, how much of the gravitational force are you balancing out. You effectively enter an orbit where you're making the mass of the star be less massive than it really is, so it's as if you were orbiting a 0.1 solar mass star or a 0.2 solar mass star, whatever you want. And so that means that uh, Mercury orbits with a pretty fast gravitational, a uh, pretty fast orbital speed around the Sun because it's closer to the Sun than we are. But we could put something in Mercury's orbit that would have a slower speed, and so it would co-track with the Earth. Mm-hmm. And so we would always be aligned with them at all times. And so this could be useful if you wanted to have a um, either a chain of, of colonies or something that were able to easily communicate and tran- and uh, and move between one another between these different bases. You would probably use something like this to maintain that uh, easy transferability or you could even use it as a uh, a space weather monitoring system, which was actually proposed in the paper. We know that uh, major events like the Carrington event that happened, you know, it can knock out all of our electromagnetic systems quite easily. A major solar flare could do that, a geomagnetic storm. But if we had the ability to detect those uh, higher elevated activity cycles in advance, um, the problem is they travel obviously pretty fast and so it's hard to get ahead of them. But you could have a station which is basically sampling solar flares very close to the surface of the Earth. And as soon as it detects anything suspicious, um, magnetically, it could then send that information straight back at the speed of light to your Earth and give you maybe uh, half an hour warning or something that something you know something bad was coming and you should shut off all your uh, systems or get in your Faraday cage now and protect yourself. Um, and so these, these quasites are kind of a cool, trick of again kind of hacking the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. It's like a, another one of these exploits that the universe seems to allow us to do to potentially manifest um these artificial systems that would otherwise be difficult to to produce. So leveraging natural phenomena. Yeah. That's always the key is is to work in my mind it's to work with nature. That's how I see astroengineering rather than against it. You're not trying to force it to do something you know it that's why i always think solar energy is so powerful because um in the battle against nuclear fusion nuclear fusion you're really fighting a battle where you're trying to confine plasma into this extremely tight space or um it, it's the sun does this for free it has gravitation and so that's the, the that's in essence what a solar panel does it, it's it is a nuclear fusion reactor fueled energy system but it's just using gravitation for the confinement and having a a huge standoff distance for its energy collection. And so um, there are tricks like that, it's very naive, simple trick in that case, where we can, rather than having to reinvent the wheel, we can use the space infrastructure, if you like, the astrophysical infrastructure that's already there to our benefit. Yeah, I think in the long
0: arc of human history, probably natural phenomena is the right solution. That's the simple, that's the elegant solution because all the power is already there. That's why a Dyson sphere in the long sort of, but you don't know what a Dyson sphere would look like, but some kind of thing that leverages the power, the, the energy that's already in the sun is, mm-hmm. is better than uh, creating artificial nuclear uh, fusion reaction. But then again, that brings us to the topic of AI. How much of this, if we're traveling out there, Interstellar travel, or um, doing some of the interesting things we've been talking about, how much of those ships would be occupied by AI systems? Do you think? What would the what would be the living organisms occupying those ships?
1: Yeah, it, it's depressing to think about AI in the search for life because. It has, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks with playing around with chat GPT-3 like many of us and being astonished with its capabilities. And you see that it, that our society is undergoing a change that seems significant in terms of the development of artificial intelligence. It, we've been promised this revolution, this singularity for a long time, but it really seems to be stepping up its, uh, its pace of development at this point. And so that's interesting, because as someone who looks freely in life out there in the universe, um, it sort of implies that our current stage of development is highly transitional. And that, you know, you go back for the last four and a half billion years, the the planet was dumb, essentially. If you go back uh, the last few thousand years, there was a civilization, but it wasn't really producing any technosignatures. And then over the last maybe 100 years, there's been something that might be detectable from afar. But we're approaching this cusp where we might imagine it. I mean, we're thinking of like maybe years and decades with AI development, typically when we talk about this. But as an astronomer, I have to think about much longer timescales of centuries, millennia, millions of years. And so if this this wave continues over that timescale, which is still the blink of an eye on a cosmic timescale, that implies that everything will be AI essentially out there mm-hmm. if this is a common behavior. And so that's intriguing because it sort of implies that we are uh, special in, in terms of our moment in time as a civilization, which it normally is um, something we're averse to as astronomers. We we normally like this mediocrity principle. We're not special. We're a typical part of the universe, some sort of the cosmological principle. But in a temporal sense, we may be, in a unique location. And perhaps that is part of the a solution to the Fermi paradox, in fact, that if it is true that planets tend to go through basically three phases dumb life for the vast majority, a, a brief period of biological intelligence, and then an extended period of artificial inter- intelligence that they transition to, then we would be in a unique and special moment in galactic history that would be of particular interest for any anthropologists out there in the galaxy, right? This would be the time that you would want to study a civilization very carefully. You wouldn't want to interfere with it. You would just want to see how it plays out. Kind of similar to the ancestor simulations that are sometimes talked with the simulation argument, that you are able to observe perhaps your own origins and study how the transformation happens. And so, yeah, that has for me recently been throwing the Fermi Paradox a bit on its head and this idea of the, the zoo hypothesis that we may be monitored, which has for a long time been sort of seen as a fringe idea, even amongst the SETI community. But if we live in this truly transitional period, it adds, it adds a lot of impetus to that idea, I think.
0: Well, even AI itself would, by its very nature, would be observing us by, you know, it's like uh human, there used to be this concept of human computation, which is actually exactly what's feeding the current chat uh, language models, which is leveraging all the busy stuff we're doing to do the hard work of learning. So, like uh, mm-hmm. the language models are trained on human interaction and human language on the internet, mm-hmm. and so it would AI feeds on the output of brain power from humans, mm-hmm. and so like it would be observing, and observing and it gets stronger as it observes. So it actually gets extremely good at observing humans. And one of the interesting philosophical questions that starts percolating is what makes us, what is the interesting thing that makes us human? We tend to think of it, uh, and you said like there's three phases. What's the thing that's hard to come by in phase three? Mm -hmm. Is it something like scarcity, which is limited resources? Is it something like consciousness? Is that the thing that's very, what um that emerged the evolutionary process in biological systems that are operating under constrained resources this thing that feels that it feels like something to experience the world which we think of as consciousness is that really difficult to replicate is in in artificial systems is that the thing that makes us fundamentally human or is it just a side effect uh that we attribute way too much importance to would you do you have do you have a sense if we look out into the future and AI systems are the ones that are traveling out there uh to alpha centauri and beyond do you think they have to carry the the flame of consciousness with them
1: no not necessarily um they they may do but they may it may not be a necessarily i mean there's i guess we're talking about the difference here between sort of an a g i Artificial general intelligence or consciousness, which are distinct ideas, and you can certainly have one without the other. So I could imagine. I, I, I would. I would disagree with this certainly in that statement. Okay. Okay. I. I, th- I think it's very possible. To, in order to have intelligence, you have to have consciousness. Okay. Well, I mean, to a to a certain degree, Chat GPT three has a level of intelligence already. It's not a general intelligence, but it, it displays properties of intelligence with with no consciousness. So. Again, ah. I would disagree. Okay, okay. Well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, because
0: I, you said, it's very nice that you said, it displays properties of intelligence. Mm-hmm. In the same way it displays properties of intelligence, I would say it's starting to display properties of consciousness. It certainly could fool you
1: that it's conscious. Correct, yeah. So there's, I guess like a, a Turing test problem, like if it's displaying all those properties, if it if it quacks like a parrot looks like a parrot or cracks yeah. like a duck things like uh, isn't it isn't it basically a yeah. duck at that point so yeah i can i can see that argument um it probably it, i mean certainly as an i try to think about it from the observer's point of view as an astronomer what am i looking for whether that intelligence is conscious or not has little bearing i think as to what i should be looking for when i'm trying to detect evidence of them. It would maybe affect their behavior in ways that I can't predict. Um, But that's, again, getting into the game of what I would call xenopsychology, of trying to make projections about the motivations of an alien species is incredibly difficult. And similarly, for any kind of artificial intelligence, it's unfathomable what its intentions may be. I mean, I would sort of question whether it would even be interested in traveling between the stars at all, if its primary goal is computation, computation for the sake of computation, then it's probably gonna have a different way of, you know, it's gonna be engineering its solar system and the nearby material around it for, for a different goal. If it's just simply trying to increase computer substrate across the universe, and that of course, if that is its principal intention to just essentially convert dumb matter into smart matter as it goes, then I think that would come into conflict with our observations of the universe, right? Because the the Earth shouldn't be here if that were true. The Earth should have been transformed into computer substrate by this point. There has been plenty of time yeah. in the history of the galaxy for that to have happened. Um, so I'm skeptical that we can... Uh, I'm skeptical in the part that, that that's a behavior that AI or, or any civilization really engages in, but I also find it difficult to find a way out of it, I, I've to, to explain why that would never happen in the entire history of the galaxy, amongst potentially, if life is common, mm-hmm. millions, maybe even billions of instant instantiations of AI could have occurred across the galaxy. Um, and so that seems to be a knock against the idea that there is life else or intelligent life elsewhere in the, in the galaxy the fact that that hasn't occurred in our history is maybe the only solid data point we really have about the activities of other civilizations. Of course, the scary one could be that
0: um, we just, at this stage, intelligent alien civilizations just start destroying themselves. It it becomes too powerful. Everything's just too many weapons, too many nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. too many nuclear weapons-style systems that just, from mistake to aggression to, like the probability of self-destruction is too high relative to the challenge of of avoiding, the technological challenges of avoiding self-destruction.
1: You mean the, the, the AI destroys itself?
0: Or no, the, we destroy everything.
1: ourselves prior to the advent of AI?
0: As we get b- b- smarter and smarter AI, um, either AI destroys us, or other. There could be just a million. Like AI is correlated. The development of AI is correlated with all this other te- technological mm-hmm. innovation, mm-hmm. Uh, genetic genetic engineering, like g- all kinds of engineering at the nanoscale, mass manufacture of things that could destroy us, or cracking physics enough to have very powerful weapons, nuclear weapons, all of it. Just too much. Physics enables way too many things that can destroy us before it enables the um, the propulsion systems that allow us to fly f- far enough away before we destroy ourselves.
1: Mm.
0: So maybe that's what happens to the other alien civilizations.
1: Is that your resolution? Because I, I mean, I think us in the technosignature community and, and the astronomy community aren't thinking about this problem seriously enough, in my opinion. We should we should be thinking about the what AI is 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 Doing to our society and the implications of what we're looking for. And so the only, I think, part of this thinking has to involve people like yourself who are more intimate with the machine learning and artificial intelligence world is your, how do you reconcile in your mind, you said earlier that you think you can't imagine a galaxy where life and intelligence is not all over the place. And if artificial intelligence is a natural progression for civilizations, how do you reconcile that with with the absence of any information around us, so any clues or hints of artificial behavior, artificially engineered stars, or colonization, computer substrate, transformed planets, anything like
0: that—it's—it's
1: it's, uh, extremely
0: difficult for me. It's ex- the, the the Fermi paradox, broadly defined, is extremely difficult for me. And the the terrifying thing is, one thing I suspect is that we keep destroying ourselves. The probability of self-destruction with, with advanced technology is just extremely high. That's why we're not seeing it. Mm-hmm. But then again, my intuition about, about why we haven't blown ourselves up with nuclear weapons, it, it's very surprising to me from a scientific perspective. Yeah, <laughs> It doesn't, given all the cruelty I've seen in the world, um, given the, the, the the power that nuclear weapons place in the hands of a very small number of individuals. It's very surprising to me we had to destroy ourselves and it seems to be a very low probability situation we have happening here. Um, but, and then the other explanation is the is the Zeus—the observation mm. that we're just being observed. That's the, that's the only other thing. It's just, it's so difficult for me. Um, I, of course, all of science, everything is very humbling. It would be very humbling for me to learn that we're alone in the universe, it would change. I, you know what? It maybe I do want that to be true because you want us to be special. That's why I'm resisting that thought. Mm. Maybe there's no way we're that special. There's no way we're that special. That's 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 where my resistance comes from. I,
1: I would just say, you know, the specialness is something we we. In, implicitly in that statement, there's kind of an assumption that we are something positive, <laughs> and, <laughs> like we're a gift to this planet or something, yeah. and that makes us special. But you know, it, it may be that intelligence is more of an is like we like rats or cockroaches. We're an infestation of this planet. We're not. We're not some benevolent property that the planet would a, a planet would ideally like to, sure, to sure. have. If you can even say such a thing, but we are, we may be. Not only a, a generally a negative force for a planet's biosphere and its own survivability, which I think you can make a strong argument about, but we may also be a very persistent infestation that may even in you know interesting thoughts in in the wake of a nuclear war, would there be an absolute eradication of every human being, which would be a fairly extreme event, or would the candle of consciousness, as you might call it, the flame of consciousness, continue with some small pockets? that would maybe in 10,000 years, 100,000 years, we'd see civilization reemerge and play out the same thing over again. Yeah, uh, that's certainly, but nuclear weapons aren't powerful enough yet. But yes, the uh,
0: but to sort of push back on the infestation, sure, but the word special doesn't have to be positive. I just mean-
1: I think uh, it it tends to imply, but I I take your point, yeah. But maybe- um, just maybe unique. extremely rare, might be. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that, to me, it just it, it's it's very strange for me to be cosmically unique. It's just very strange. I I I mean, that we're <laughs> the only thing of this level of complexity in the
1: galaxy just seems very strange to me. I, I, I would just, yeah, I. As I said, I do think it depends on this classification. I think we, there is sort of, an, again, it's kind of buried within there as a subtext, but there is a a classification that we're doing here that what we are is a distinct category of, of life, let's say, in this case, when we're talking about intelligence, we are something that can be separated. Um, but of course, we see intelligence across the animal kingdom in you know dolphins, humpback whales, um, octopuses, crows, ravens. And so it's quite possible that um that these are all manifestations of the same thing and and we are not uh we are not a particularly distinct class except for the fact we make technology that's really any difference to our intelligence and we we classify that separately but from a biological perspective to some degree it's really just all part of a continuum and so that's why i I, when we talk about unique you're you're you are putting yourself in a box which is distinct and saying this is the only example of things that fall into this box. But that but the walls of that box may themselves be a construct of our own arrogance that we are something distinct. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I was also speaking broadly for us, meaning all life on
0: earth. That, but then it's possible that there's all kinds of living uh, ecosystems and on other planets and other moons that just don't have interest in technological development
1: mm-hmm.
0: and may, maybe maybe technological development is the 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 parasitic thing it destroys mm-hmm. the organism broadly and then th- maybe that's actually one of the fundamental realities, whatever broad way to categorize technological development, that's that's just a parasitic thing that just destroys itself. Yeah, it, it, It's a cancer, you know. We're like flirting
1: around, sorry to interrupt, but we're flirting around this idea of the great filter a little yes. bit here. So we're asking where is this, does it lie ahead of us? Nuclear mm-hmm. war, maybe imminent, that would be a, a filter that's ahead of us. Or could it be behind us and that it's the advent of technology that is genuinely a rare occurrence in the universe and that explains the Fermi paradox. Um, and so that's uh, that's something that obviously people have debated and gone argued about in SETI for decades and decades. But it remains a a persistent people argue whether it should be really called a paradox or not. But it remains a consistent apparent contradiction that you can make a very cogent argument as to why you expect life and intelligence to be common in the universe, and yet everything everything we know about the universe is fully compatible with. Just us being here, and that's a haunting thought. But um, I'm not—I have no preference or desire for that to be true. I'm not trying to impose that view on anyone, but I do ask that we remain open-minded until evidence has been collected either way. The thing is, it's one of, if not
0: the, probably I would argue, it's the most important question facing human civilization, or the most interesting. Yeah, I, I think scientifically speaking, like what question is more important than, um, the uh, somehow, you know, there the could be other ways to sneak up to it, but it's, it gets to the essence of what we are, what yes. these living organisms are. It's somehow seeing another kind. <laughs> yeah. Helps us understand. It speaks
1: to the human condition, helps us understand what it is to be human to some degree. Um, I think, you know, I I have tried to mean remain very agnostic about the idea of life and intelligence. One thing I try to be more optimistic about, and I've been thinking a lot with our searches for life in the universe, is life in the past. You can I think it's actually not that hard to imagine we are the only civilization in the galaxy right now. Living. Yeah, that's that's currently extant but there may be very many extinct civilizations. If each civilization has a typical lifetime comparable to, let's say, AI is the demise of our own, that's only a few hundred years of technological development or maybe 10,000 years, if you go back to the Neolithic Revolution, the dawn of agriculture, you know, hardly anything in cosmic time timespan. Um, that, that's nothing, that's the blink of an eye. And so it's not surprising at all that we would happen not to coexist with anyone else. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean nobody else was ever here, and if other civilizations come to that same conclusion and realization, maybe they scour the galaxy around them, don't find any evidence for intelligence, then they have two options. They can either give up on communication and just say, well, it's never gonna happen. Uh, we just may as well just you know worry about what's happening here on our own planet. Or they could attempt communication, but communication through time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's almost um, the most selfless act of communication, because there's no hope of getting anything back. Mm-hmm. It's um, a philanthropic gift, almost, to that other civilization that you can maybe, maybe it might just be nothing more than a monument, which the pyramids essentially are—a monument of their existence. That these are the things they achieved. This was their, you know, the things they believed in, their language, their culture, or um, it could be maybe something more than that, It could be sort of lessons from what they learned in their own history, and so. I've been thinking a lot recently about how would we send a message to other civilizations in the future? Because that act of thinking seriously about the engineering of how we would design it would inform us about what we should be looking for, mm-hmm. and also perhaps be our best chance, quite frankly, of ever making contact. It might not be the contact we dream of, but it's still contact there would st- there would still be a record of our existence as pitiful as it might be compared to a two-way communication and we- i love the humility behind that project that universal project yeah
0: it's a uh, sort of it's humble and the f- <laughs> it uh humbles you to the the vast temporal landscape of the universe just realizing our like day-to-day lives, all of us will be forgotten. Mm -hmm. It's nice to think about something that sends a signal out to other, um, yeah.
1: It's it's, almost like a humility of acceptance as well, of like knowing that you have a terminal disease, but, your impact on the earth doesn't have to end with your death, that it could go on beyond with what you leave behind for others to discover with maybe the books you write or what you leave in the literature. Do you think launching the Roadster vehicle <laughs> out in space, with not yeah, panic? Yeah, the think? Roadster. Um, I'm not sure what someone would make of that if they found that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, there have been quasi-attempts at it beyond the Roadster. I mean, there's like plaques on, there's the Pioneer plaques, um, there's the Voyager 2 Golden Record. Um, it's pretty unlikely anybody's going to discover those uh, because they're just adrift in space and they 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 will eventually mechanically die and not produce any signal for anyone to spot. So you'd have to be extremely lucky to come across them. I've, I've often said to my colleagues that I think the, the best place is the Moon. The Moon... Unlike the Earth has no significant weathering, the you know the how long will the Apollo descent stages, which are still sun on the lunar surface, last for? Mm-hmm. The the only real effect is micrometeorites, which are slowly like dust smashing against them pretty much. Um, but that's going to take millions, potentially billions of years to erode that down. And so we have an opportunity, and that's on the surface. If you put something just a few meters beneath the surface, it would have even greater protection. And so it raises the prospect of that if we wanted to send something, a significant amount of information to a future galactic spanning civilization that maybe cracks the interstellar propulsion problem, the moon's gonna be there for five billion years. That's a long time for somebody to come by and detect maybe a strange pattern that we draw on the sand for them to, you know, big arrow, big cross, like (laughs) look under here, and we could have a tomb of knowledge of some record of our civilization. Um, And so I think it's, uh, when you think like that, what that implies to us, well, okay, the galaxy is 13 billion years old, the moon is already four billion years old. There may be places familiar to us, nearby to us, that we should be seriously considering as, we should look for life and intelligent life or evidence of relics that they might leave behind for us so that thinking like that will help us find such relics
0: and it's like a, it's a, uh it's a like a beneficial cycle that happens yes
1: yeah exactly That,
0: that enables the science of, of society better like of of searching for bios and tech signatures and so on yeah and it's inspiring I mean it's 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 also inspiring in that we want to leave a legacy behind as an mm. entire civilization, not just in the symbols, but broadly speaking, yeah. that's the last thing somehow.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm part of a team that's trying to re, re repeat the golden record experiment. Uh, we're trying to create like an open source version of the golden record that future spacecraft are, are able to download and basically put on a little hard drive that so they can carry around with them and you know get these distributed, hopefully, across the solar system eventually. And, is it gonna be called the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or not? Yeah, It could be. That's a good name for it. We've we've been toying a little bit with the name, but I think probably it would just be Golden Record at this point or Golden Record version right. two or something. But um I think uh I think uh, another benefit that I see of this activity is that it forces us as a species to ask those questions about what it is that we want another civilization to know about us. The golden record was kind of funny because it had photos on it, and it had photos of people eating, for instance. Um, but it had no photos of people defecating. Mm-hmm. And so I always thought that was kind of funny because <laughs> if I was if I was an alien, yeah, or if I was studying an alien, if I saw images of an alien, I would. Yeah. I'm not trying to be like a pervert or anything, but I would want to see the full. Bio- I want to understand the biology of that alien. And so we we always censor what we mm-hmm. what we show. Um, and we, we should show the whole actual natural process, and then also say we humans
0: tend to censor these things. We tend to not like to walk around naked. We tend to not to talk about uh, some of the natural biological phenomena, and talk a lot about others. Yeah, and and actually just be very uh, like the way you would be to a therapist or something, very transparent about the way we actually operate.
1: Yeah, in this world. I mean, and Sagan had the Sagan had that with the Golden Record. I think he he originally. Uh, there's a there's a male and a female figure depicted on the golden record. And the the woman had a genitalia originally drawn. And uh there was a lot of pushback from I think a lot of Christian groups who were not happy about the idea of throwing this into space. And so eventually they had to remove that. And so it's it would be confusing biologically if you're you know trying to study xenobiology of, of this alien that apparently has no genitalia or the man does but for some reason the woman doesn't you know and that's our that's our own uh societal and cultural um imprint happening into that information that's to be fair just even having
0: two sexes and predators and prey just the whole that could be just a very unique earth-like thing so they might be confused about why there's like pairs of things like why are you <laughs> like why why is there a man and a woman in general right. like they they could be i mean they could be confused about a lot of things in general i don't i don't think the but they don't even know which way to hold, to hold the picture exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? or they, there's the picture they don't they might not need
1: they they might have very different sensory devices to even interpret Correct, yeah. this they, if they it. only you know have uh, sound as their only way of navigating the world it's kind of Lost just to, to send any kind of. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about sending video and uh, audio uh, and uh, video and pictures, and I've that's one of the things I've been a little bit resistant about in the team. That I've been thinking, well, they might not have eyes, and so if you lived in under um, Europa's surface, having eyes wouldn't be very useful. Um, if you lived in a on a very dark planet on the tightly locked night side of an exoplanet, having eyes wouldn't be particularly useful. So it's kind of a, a presumption of us to think that video is a useful form of communication.
0: Do you hope we become a multiplanetary species? So we almost sneaking up to that, but um, you know the efforts of SpaceX of Elon, mm-hmm. maybe in general, what your thoughts are about those efforts. So You already mentioned Starship will be very interesting for astronomy for for science in general just getting stuff out into space. But what about the longer term goal of actually colonizing, of building civilizations on other surfaces, on moons, on planets?
1: It seems like an, a fairly obvious thing to do for our survival, right? There's a high risk, if, if we are committed to trying to keep this human, human experiment going, um, putting all of our eggs in one basket is always gonna be a risky strategy to pursue. It's a nice basket though, but yeah. It is a beautiful basket. I wouldn't want to, I personally have no interest in living on Mars or the moon. I would like to visit, but I would definitely not want to spend the rest of my life and die on Mars. It's a, I mean, it's a hellhole. Mars is a very, very different, I think the idea that this is going to happen in the next, you know, 10, 20 years is, seems to me very optimistic. Um, Not that it's insurmountable, but the, the challenges are extreme to survive on a planet like Mars, which is you know like a dry, frozen desert um, with a high radiation environment. It's it, it's a challenge of a, of a type we've never faced before. So it, it's I'm sure human ingenuity can tackle it, but I'm skeptical that we'll have thousands of people living on Mars in my lifetime. But I would I would relish that opportunity to maybe one day. Visit such a settlement, and you know, um, do scientific experiments on Mars or experience Mars. Uh, do astronomy from Mars. You know, all sorts of cool stuff you could do. Um, you know, sometimes you see these dreams of outer solar system exploration, and you can like fly through the clouds of Venus, or you could. Um, just do these enormous jumps on like these small moons where you can essentially jump as high as a skyscraper and traverse them. And so there's all sorts of, you know, wonderful ice skating on Europa might be fun. So don't get me wrong, I love the idea of us becoming interplanetary. I think it's um it's just a question of uh time. Our own our own destructive tendencies are, as you said earlier, are at odds with our emerging capability to become interplanetary. And the question is, will we get out of the nest before we burn it down? Mm. And I, I don't know. I Obviously I hope that we do, but I, I don't have any special insight that there is, there is a problem, there is somewhat of a, um, a gnawing intellectual itch I have with the, the so-called doomsday argument, which um, I try not to treat too seriously, but there is some element of it that bothers me. Uh, the doomsday argument basically, suggests that you know you're typically the mediocrity principle you're not special, that you're probably going to be born somewhere in the middle of all human beings who will ever be born. You're unlikely to be one of the first one percent of human beings that ever lived and one of the last one and similarly the last one percent of human beings that will ever live, because you'd be very unique and special if that were true. And so by this logic, you can sort of calculate um, how many generations of humans you might expect. So if there's been, let's say, 100 billion human beings that have ever lived on this planet then you could say to 95% confidence, so uh, you divide by 5%, so uh, 100 billion divided by 0.05 would give you 2 trillion human beings that would ever live, you'd expect by this argument. And so if each, um, if let's say each, each planet, each, in general the planet has a 10 billion population, so that would be 200 generations of humans we would expect ahead of us. And if each one has an average lifetime of say, 100 years, then that would be about 20,000 years. So there's 20,000 years left in the clock. There's mm-hmm. like a typical doomsday argument type. Uh, that's how they typically lay it out. Um, now you can argue the, a lot of the criticisms of the doomsday argument come down to, well, what are you really counting? You're counting humans there, but maybe you should be counting years. Or maybe you should be counting human hours. You know, how what are you because what you count makes a big difference to what you get out in the other end. So this is called the reference class. Um, and so that's one of the big criticisms of the doomsday argument. But I do think it has a compelling point that it would be surprising if our future is to one day blossom and become a galactic spanning empire, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of Human beings will one day live across the stars for essentially, as long as the galaxy exists and the stars burn, we would live at an incredibly special point in that story. We would be right at the very, very, very beginning. And that's not impossible, but it's just somewhat improbable. And so there's part of that sort of um irks against me, but it also almost feels like a philosophical argument because you're sort of talking about souls being drawn from this cosmic pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not an argument that I lose sleep about for our fate of the doomsday, but it is um, somewhat intellectually annoying that, that there is a, a slight contradiction now, it feels like, with the idea of a galactic spanning empire.
0: Yeah, but of course there's so many unknowns. I, I for one, would love to visit even space, but Mars. Just imagine standing on Mars and looking back at Earth. Yeah,
1: I mean, the um, incredible sight. It would give you such a fresh perspective as to your entire existence and what it yeah. meant to be human.
0: Yeah, and then come back to Earth. And it would it would give you give you a heck of a perspective.
1: Plus, the the sunset on
0: Mars is supposed to be nice.
1: I loved what William Shatner said after his flight. Um, his words really moved me when he came down. And I think uh, it, it really captured the idea that we shouldn't really be sending uh, engineers, our scientists, into space. We, we should be sending our poets, because those are the people, when they come down, who can, who can truly make a difference with, when they describe their experiences in space. And I found it very moving reading what he, what he said.
0: Yeah, it, you, when you talk to astronauts, when they when they describe what they see, it's like this... <laughs> like they've discovered a whole new thing that they can't possibly convert back into words. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's beautiful to see. Just as a quick, before I forget, I have to ask you, um, can you summarize your argument against the hypothesis that we live in a simulation? Is it sim- similar to our discussion
1: about uh, the doomsday clock? Um, no, it's actually pretty more similar to my... Um, agnosticism about life in the universe, and it's just sort of remaining agnostic about all possibilities. Um, The simulation argument, sometimes it gets um, mixed. There's kind of two distinct things that we need to consider. One is the probability that we live in so-called base reality, that we're not living in a simulated reality itself. And another probability we need to consider is the probability that that technology is viable, possible, and something we will ultimately choose to one day do. Mm-hmm. And those are two distinct things. They're probably quite similar numbers to each other, but they are distinct probabilities. So my, in my paper I, I, I wrote about this, I just tried to work through the problem. I teach astrophysics, actually, teaching it this morning. And so it just seemed like a fun case study of working through a Bayesian calculation for it. Um, Bayesian calculations work on conditionals. And so when you hear, you know, what kind of inspired this project was when I heard Musk said well, "There's was like a, a billion to one chance that we don't live in a simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, he's right if you add the Bayesian conditional, and the Bayesian conditional is uh, conditioned upon the fact that we eventually develop that technology and choose to use it, or it's is, is chosen to be used by such species by such civilizations, that's the conditional. And you have to add that in because that conditional isn't guaranteed. And so um, in a Bayesian framework, you can kind of make that explicit. You see mathematically explicitly that's a conditional in your equation. And the, the opposite side of the coin is basically um, in the trilemma that Bostrom originally put forward, it's options one and two. Mm-hmm. So option one is that you basically never develop the ability to do that. Option two is you never choose to execute that. Mm-hmm. So we kind of group those together as sort of the, uh, the non-simulation uh, scenario, let's call it. And so you've got non-simulation scenario and simulation scenario. And agnostically, we really, have to give though, you know, how do you assess the model, the a priori model probability of those two scenarios? Um, it's very difficult and we can, I think people would probably argue about how you as- assign those priors. In the paper, we just assigned 50-50. We just said, we this hasn't been demonstrated yet. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that this um, is actually technically possible, but nor is it that it's not technically possible. So we're just gonna assign 50-50 probability to these two hypotheses. And then in in the hypothesis where you have a simulated reality, you have a base reality set at the top. So there is, even in the simulated hypothesis, there's a probability you still live in base reality. And then there's a whole myriad of universes beneath that, which are all simulated. Um, And so you have a a very slim probability of being in base reality if this is true. Mm -hmm. And you have a 100% probability of living in base reality, on the other hand, if it's not true and we never develop that ability or choose never to use it. And so then you apply this technique called Bayesian model averaging, which is where you propagate the uncertainty of your two models to get out a final estimate. And because of that one base reality that lives in the simulated scenario, you end up counting this up and getting that it always has to be less than 50%. So the probability living live in, in, in a simulated reality versus a base reality has to be slightly less than 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that really comes down to that statement of giving it 50-50 odds mm-hmm. to begin with. And on the one hand, you might say, look, David, I am you know I work in artificial intelligence. I'm very confident that this is gonna happen, just of extrapolating of current trends. Or on the other hand, a statistician would say, um, you're giving way too much uh, weight to the simulation hypothesis because it's an intrinsically highly complicated model. Mm-hmm. You have a whole hierarchy of realities within realities within realities. It's like the inception style thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so this requires hundreds thousands millions of parameterizations to describe and by Occam's razor we would always normally penalize inherently complicated models as being disfavored. So I think you could argue I'm being too generous or too kind with that, but I sort of want to develop the the rigorous mathematical tools to explore it mm-hmm. and ultimately it's up to you to decide what you think that 50-50 odds should be, but you can use my Formula to plug in whatever you want and get the answer. And I use 50 50. So, and but when, when in that first pile, uh, with, with the
0: first two parts of the 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 boss talks about, it seems like connected to that is the question we've been talking about, which is the number of times at bat you get, which is the number of intelligent civilizations that are out there that can uh build such simulations. Mm-hmm. That's it seems like very closely connected, because if we're the only ones that are here and they could build such things, that changes things.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this. yeah, the simulation hypothesis has all sorts of implications like that. Um, I've always loved, Sean Carroll pointed out a really interesting contradiction, apparently, with the simulation hypothesis that I speak about a little bit in the paper. But he showed that, um, or, or pointed out that in this hierarchy of realities, which then develop their own AIs within the realities, and then they, use, or, or really ancestor simulations, I should say, rather than AI, they develop their own capability to simulate realities. You get this hierarchy. And so eventually there'll be a bottom layer. Um, which I often call the sewer of reality. <laughs> it's like the worst layer, where it's the most pixelated it could possibly be, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, because yeah. each layer is necessarily going to have less computational power than the layer above it, because mm-hmm. not only are you simulating that entire planet, but also some of that's being used for the the computers themselves that those are simulated. And so that base reality, or certainly the sewer of reality, is a is a is a reality where they are simply unable to produce ancestor simulations because the fidelity of the simulation is not sufficient. And so from their point of view, it might not be obvious that the universe is pixelated, but they would just never be able to manifest that capability. What if they're constantly simulating, because uh, it, it, in order
0: to uh, appreciate the limits of the fidelity, you have to have an observer. What if they're all, always simulating a dumber and dumber observer? Yeah. <laughs> what if the sewer has very dumb observers that can't like scientists that are the dumbest possible scientists? So like it's it's very pixelated, but the scientists are too dumb to to even see the the pixelations. Right. So like that that's like built into the universe always has to be a limitation on the cognitive capabilities of the complex systems that are within it.
1: Yeah, so that sewer reality, they would still presumably be able to have a a very impressive computational capabilities, they would probably be able to simulate galactic formation or this kind of impressive stuff, but they would be just short of the ability to, however you define it, create a truly sentient conscious experience in a computer. That would just be just beyond their capabilities. And so uh, Carol pointed out that if you add up all the, you know, you count up how many realities there should be, probabilistically, if this is true, over here, the simulation, hypothesis or scenario, then you're most likely to find yourself in the sewer because there's just far more of them than there are of any of the higher levels. And so that sort of sets up a contradiction because then you live in a reality which is inherently incapable of ever producing ancestor simulations. But the premise of the entire argument is that ancestor simulations are possible. So there's 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 a contradiction. That's you know, been there's
0: that there's that old quote: "We're all living in the sewer, but some of us are looking <laughs> up at the stars." Uh, this this <laughs> is
1: maybe more true than we think.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, to me, so there's of course physics and computational uh, fascinating questions here. But to me, there's a practical psychological question, which is, you know, how do you create a virtual reality world that um, is as compelling and not necessarily even as realistic, but almost as realistic, but as compelling or more compelling than physical reality. Because mm. something tells me it's not—it's not very difficult in the in the in the full history of human civilization. That, that is an interesting kind of simulation to me because that feels like it's doable in the next hundred years. Creating a world where we're all prefer to live in the digital world. Mm. And not like a visit, but like, it's like, you're seen as insane. No, like you're required, it's unsafe to live outside of the virtual world. And uh, it's interesting to me from an engineering perspective how to build that, because I'm somebody that sort of loves video games and it seems like you can create incredible worlds there mm. and stay there. and. Uh, that's a it's a different question than creating a ultra high resolution, high fidelity simulation of physics. But if that world inside a video game is as consistent as the physics of our reality, then you can have your own scientists in that world that are trying to understand that physics mm. world. It might look different,
1: and but- presumably, they'd eventually forget you know, give it give it long enough, they might forget about their origins yeah. of being once biological and assume this was their only reality. Especially um, if you're
0: now born, you know, uh, well, certainly if you're born, but even if you are eight years old or something when you first started wearing the yeah. headset.
1: <laughs> yeah, or you could have a memory wipe when you go in. I mean, it, it, it also kind of maybe speaks to this issue of like Neuralink and how do we keep up with AI in our world? if you want to augment your intelligence, um, perhaps one way of competing, and the, one of your impetuses for going into this digital reality would be to be competitive intellectually with um, artificial intelligences, that you could trivially augment your reality if your brain was itself artificial. But I mean, one, one skepticism I've always had about that is is whether, it's more a philosophical question, but how much is that really you if you do a mind upload? Is this just a duplicate of your memories that thinks it's you versus truly a transference of your conscious stream into that reality? And I think when you, uh, you, it's almost like the teleportation device in Star Trek, um, but with teleportation, quantum teleportation, you can kind of rigorously show that, um, that uh, you know all as long as all of the Quantum numbers are exactly duplicated as you transfer over. It truly is, from the universe's perspective, um, in every way indistinguishable from what was there before. It really is, in principle, you and all the sense of being you versus creating a a duplicate clone and uploading memories uh, to that human body or a computer that would surely be uh, a discontinuation of that conscious experience by virtue of the fact you've multiplied it. And so I, I would be hesitant about uploading for that reason. I would see it mostly as my own killing myself and having some um, AI duplicate of me that persists in this world, but is not truly my experience. Typical 20th century human <laughs>
0: with, with, a, with an attachment to this particular singular instantiation of brain and body how silly humans used to be. used to have rotary phones and um, <laughs> and, and other silly things. Um, you're an incredible human being. You're an educator, you're a researcher. Uh, you have uh, like an amazing uh, YouTube channel. Looking to young people, if you were to give them advice, how can they have a, a career that maybe is inspired by yours, um, inspired by wandering curiosity, mm-hmm. a career that can be proud of, or a uh, life they can be
1: proud of? What advice would you give? I certainly think in terms of a, a career in science, one thing that I maybe discovered late but has been incredibly influential on me in terms of my own happiness and my own um, productivity has been this synergy of doing two passions at once, one passion in science communication and another passion in research, and not surrendering either one. And I think that tends to be seen as something that's an either-or. You have to completely dedicate yourself to one thing to gain mastery in it. That's a conventional way of thinking about both science and other disciplines. And I have found that both have been elevated by practicing in each. Um, And I think... That's true in all assets of life. I mean, if you want to become the best researcher you possibly can, you're pushing your intellect and, in a sense, your body to a high level. And so, to me, I've always wanted to couple that with training of my body, training of my mind in other ways besides from just what I'm doing when I'm in the lecture room or when I'm in my office, you know, calculating something. Um, Focusing on your own development through whatever it is, meditation, for me it's often running, working out, um, and pursuing multiple passions, provides this uh, almost synergistic bliss of all of them together. So often I've had some of the best research ideas from making a YouTube video and trying to communicate an idea or interacting with my audience. who have had a question that sparked a whole trail of thought that led down this wonderful intellectual rabbit hole or maybe to a new intellectual discovery can go either way sometimes with those things. Um, and so thinking broadly, diversely, and always looking after yourself in this uh, in this highly competitive and often extremely stressful world that we live in um, is the best advice I can offer anybody. And just try, if you can, to, it's very cheesy, but if you can follow your passions, you'll always be happy. Um, trying to Sell out for for the quick cash out for the quick book out um, can be tempting in the short term. Looking for exomoons was never was never easy, but I made a career not out of discovering exomoons, but out of learning how to communicate the difficult problem and discovering all sorts of things along the way. You know, we shot for the sky and we discovered all this stuff along the way. We discovered dozens of new planets using all sorts of new techniques. Um, we pushed this instrumentation to new places. And I've had an extremely productive uh research career in this world. I've had all sorts of ideas, working on techno signatures. It's it's you know, thinking innovatively pushes you into all sorts of exciting directions. Um, so just just try to, yeah, it's hard to find that passion, but you you can sometimes remember it when you were a kid, what your passions were and what what fascinated you as a child. For me, as soon as I picked up a space book when I was five years old, that was it. I was hooked on space and I almost betrayed my passion at college. I studied physics, which I've always been fascinated by physics as well. But I came back to astronomy because it was my first love and I was much happier doing research in astronomy than I was in physics because it spoke to that wonder I had as a child that first was the spark of curiosity for me in science. So society will
0: try to get you to look at hot Jupiters. Yeah. <laughs> and the advice is to look for the cool world instead. Uh, what do you think is the meaning of this whole thing? You ever ask yourself why?
1: It's just a ride. That's it's how I ride. think it. it's just a ride. We're on a roller coaster. And we have no purpose. It's an accident in my my perspective. There's no meaning to my life. There's no objective uh deity who is overwatching what I'm doing and I I have some fate or destiny it's all just ride, riding on a roller coaster and trying to have a good time and and and, <laughs> and contribute to to other people's enjoyment of the ride yeah, yeah try,
0: um, try try to make it a happy uh, happy accident
1: yeah yeah i i i see no fundamental um providence in in my life or in the nature of the universe. And you just see this universe is this beautiful cosmic accident of galaxies smashing together, stars forging here and there, and planets occasionally spawning maybe life across the universe. Um, And we are just one of those instantiations and we should just enjoy this very brief episode that we have. And I think trying to look at it much deeper than that is... um, is, to me, uh, it's not very soul satisfying. I just think enjoy what you've got and appreciate it. It does seem noticing that
0: beauty um helps make the ride pretty fun. Yeah, absolutely. David, you're an incredible person. I, I, I haven't covered most of the things I wanted to talk to you about. This was an incredible conversation. I, I just, I'm glad you exist. I'm glad you're doing everything you're doing, and I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much for talking today. This was amazing. Thank you so much, Lex, it's a real honor, thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with David Kipping. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Carl Sagan. Perhaps the aliens are here, but are hiding because of some Lex Galactica, some ethic of non-interference with emerging civilizations. We can imagine them curious and dispassionate observing us as we would watch a bacterial culture in a dish to determine whether this year, again, we managed to avoid self-destruction. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.